This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. back everybody to wrestling omakase it is episode number 147 and this week um before i get into anything else uh you know we did this last week and i want to do it again um black lives matter if you're able to please donate uh to you know a charitable organization uh i'm gonna put a link in the description which has a lot of uh you know different kinds of you know different charities you can donate to uh, from victim memorial funds to bail funds to mega funds, which are this is what I this is what I actually did the Act Blue mail fund or mega funds where they they will split up your donation across a whole bunch of different organizations. Um, you know, there's also things called uh, community restoration funds, community enrichment organizations. There's, there's a ton of stuff. So you know, please you know I, know I know a lot of people have donated and. Some of the some of the numbers have been really staggering, so please continue to donate. Uh, you know, Black Lives Matter, and I, that's the absolute first thing I wanted to say before anything else. So we will again make the awkward transition from that to pro wrestling. Uh, I'm very pleased to be joined by a debuting guest, um, Brandon Thurston from WrestleNomics. Hi, Brandon. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. Uh, it's your very first time on the podcast. Uh, part of yeah. the part of the tour we're doing kind of of the other voices of wrestling uh podcast network shows uh and you you were one i wanted to have on immediately because when i came up with this idea because like really what you do is so different from what we mm-hmm. do and i feel like nobody ever like you know i listen to wrestlenomics quite a lot and like you know i get to hear your thoughts on you know graphs and stuff but i feel like you never get to just like dive into a match or like talk about the subjective <laughs> side of wrestling so i figured that would be interesting for people to hear you and i'm sure fun for you to do yeah so like we've been doing i've been doing wrestlenomics going back since when i started with chris harrington like 2017 and uh we've always kind of tried to focus on doing stuff that's a little bit different and and you know not necessarily talking about uh, what we thought about matches and stuff but and the, the the truth is this i watched five matches today like just before we we got on the phone here and this is probably, I, I, to tell you the truth, I don't watch that much, like, I'm watching with my full attention, watching a match, watching wrestling. And uh, I, was, I was just, I was thinking, like, earlier this afternoon while I was watching all these matches, you know what, I probably haven't 
watched five matches in the entire like focused my attention is solely on the, on the tv and watching the matches i probably haven't done that in the entire time of the uh the quarantine here since about the middle middle of march Re- like really the the time that i most time that i spend watching matches has been and we're not even training right now so it has been at training where we're like we would have people do practice matches and i'll like try to give them feedback and stuff uh which yeah i have a train school that i'm a part of uh in the buffalo area here uh, called grapplers anonymous so so what I did was I just sort of took some notes as I was doing this and I was realizing that this is very much like um, so, sort of like the way that I take notes when I watch uh, some of the students wrestle, although uh, the quality of wrestling is very different. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing, too, is obviously you're a, you know, an in-ring wrestler. So, you, I, you know, it's always interesting to me to hear what uh, wrestlers think when they talk about matches. I mean, we did. You're the second, I believe, in-ring wrestler to appear on the show because we had Gran Akuma. Um, oh, cool. a couple of years ago yeah so you're the second one who's actually had match experience i might be forgetting somebody but i, I don't think i am but yeah uh so that i always like getting that perspective too yeah and and like the other thing too is so all five of the matches that we watched for this are from japan and i, I don't know if you know so I, was, I was wondering too john like how long have you been have you been watching japanese wrestling for? uh about oh, oh god this is this will be like my 19th year Okay. So what year is that? Like 2001, 2002. Like later. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, very good. So I, I think I started in like, well, 2000. I started getting taped. Maybe 99. I got like a Hayabusa tape, and then it took me like eight months to a year to get into the rest of it. But I started to get like some all Japan uh, around 2000, right? And I really got into it from about 2000 to 2003. I was very into it, and I got tapes all the time, and. uh I mean, then about the time I started like training and actually being on some indie shows here, that's when I sort of fell out of it until until New Japan got really hot in the last few years. So like 2013, 14. So you're another like, uh, I guess I, I always call us like Puro old heads, I guess. Yeah. And you'd be the yeah. rare the rare guest who's been watching this stuff longer yes. than I have. Are, are but, you uh, from the VHS era? You have VHS tapes? Um, I don't actually, because basically when I started, you know, I think like, the very first things I bought may have been VHS, like from, uh, I've told this story a million times, but there was this, there was this table at Jersey All Pro Wrestling back in the day called Mayfield Mayhem, and they used oh, to- Oh, yeah. Okay. George Mayfield. Yes. He, he used yes. to do like- he used to He's do from t- Buffalo. Oh, I didn't even know that. Wow. I mean, he I, I, he was at every single fucking Jersey All Pro show. So, so like, I don't, I don't know if he still lives in Buffalo, but he would, I, I would go to some shows in Rochester, New York. And he would be there, like with his table, with all of his tapes and DVDs. I think he was selling DVDs by the time I encountered him. But like, I remember like going to the after party and like sort of like talking to him about like he used to go to the Tokyo Dome and he was at the uh, the the Big Egg Dome show for All Japan Women and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, he ran tours. I remember yeah. begging my dad to let me go on one of the tours and like because he was, I think he was promoting as a, as his last tour. In like I don't know the exact year, probably oh three oh four or something, and you know that did not happen. I would not make it Japan until twenty sixteen, but but yeah, it was a but the the Mayfield Mayhem thing was my first thing. I don't know if I I may have bought one or two tapes before he was then selling DVDs, and then after that I found um, so I lived in where I lived in New Jersey at the time. I was pretty close to a like a Japanese like supermarket. And in there, they had a video rental store, which is like designed for Japanese immigrants, where they would take, they would tape basically all this Japanese TV, and it would be on DVD-Rs at the time, 
and you would just you know rent them for like a dollar or two dollars or something and bring them back and this was designed for immigrants but they taped all the fucking uh japanese wrestling that was airing at the time so i just was renting all that stuff so that was my go-to for a while and and then i think i also got like male dvds too from like you know some of the things going on and then finally we got to like the download era i guess like towards the end of the mid to late aughts i don't know if you're an aughts guy yeah, I think I think I, I I fell out just around the time that, you know, people were talking about offering DVDs instead of VHS, and, and that, like actually from like 2001 to 2003, I had like a website where I would I would go on the uh, the Japanese sports sites every day, and you know wait for them to do their update and then like put the the page through the Alta Vista translator or whatever and try to like post news notes from from what I could derive from the the translated Japanese to uh, you know to have like this Japanese news wrestling website yeah i that's uh you know people had I, I guess all, all sorts of like uh auto translated sites at the time i definitely remember that yeah. and then like i i don't this i've never heard people talk about i know it existed in my head do you remember new J- when new japan had like a a proto subscription site like very early i want to say like maybe like oh three oh four no uh, for like for video for the yeah show? yeah they had like fun, no. they had video for their shows because no one ever talks about it, so I assume it wasn't very popular. But I was, I subscribed. I found I like worked through the tutorial that was on like wow. Strong Style Sphere at the time and subscribed to it. The quality was hideous, as you can imagine. <laughs> but yeah, that existed in like the early to mid aughts. I don't remember even. I think it was only like it was like a certain kind of show. Like basically, you know how like now you have a you have Samurai TV shows. You have shows that are on, yeah. uh, you know, TVSI channel two. I want to say it was like only a certain type, like a certain shows that aired on a certain network. Uh, but they were doing ESPN at the time. Yes, it, I was about to say. I think it was ESPN. So I yeah. think it was the shows that aired on the ESPN uh, in Japan at the time. Huh. So that's wow. a very interesting little footnote that didn't last very long because I remember uh, being subscribed to it for a little while and then it just kind of went away. But uh, yeah. that was like a very early attempt at like video on demand. So, so how many times have you, have you been to Japan now? I've never been to Japan. It's sort of on my list of, like, something I should probably do sometime in my life. So I've been there three times. Uh, wow. Invasion Attack 2016. Uh, it was, like, basically Alan put... Alan for Al, who's going to be on next week, which I can... Uh-huh. Get a little transition. But he, he, like, organized a trip to Japan based around going to Invasion Attack, which is, like, the big... Before it was Sakura Genesis, it was Invasion Attack. And, you know, we went to... Did you to go with Todd Martin? Uh, in 2017, so that was the okay. next trip. So yeah, the 2016 trip, that only happened because I went to... So I was thinking of going, and then I went to a casino in like January 2016 in Foxwoods when on like a trip I had already planned, and like some kind of like act of God, it was like the best casino trip I've ever had. Like I couldn't lose wow. the entire two days I was there. One, probably close to $1,000, and like... I took that as like someone telling me, just go, you know, basically. And it was like the the amount of money that uh, I needed to go on this trip. I probably could have swung it anyway, but like, you know, having an extra thousand dollars was like, well, now I definitely can swing it. So now I'm going to go. And uh, yeah, so that was my first trip and, you know, had such an amazing time. I went back in 2017 for the G1. So I saw the last three nights of the G1 when where uh you know when Nitro won and that was the trip I went on that also had like Todd Martin um 
and a uh, uh, Mort, who's like a Twitter guy. Oh yeah, 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 a bunch of other people. And you know that was summer 2017, and then I went last year, uh, 2019 for Dominion and the Best of Super Junior final. So, wow. yeah, and I'm I'm supposed to go again this year for the G1 finals in October. Uh, will that happen? I don't know. <laughs> you know, with everything Bruh. going. Wait. I, it, it looks like maybe there's there's a there's a chance that we'll be doing shows by the summer, and I, I bet the airfare will probably be a little bit cheaper too. Well, I already if, have if that's the case. I already have my airfare, so that's like the big like oh. mystery. So I bought I bought my airfare way back in January when like they had a they had a big sale, and you know now it's like will I will will they let me in the country is the big question. Like I would go to Japan, right. I if they let me in the country I would go even if New Japan isn't running shows because there's enough Japanese stuff that I'm into that I'd more than yeah. Me be able to entertain myself for 10 days but the big question to me is like will they let me in the country but yeah will will they let americans into the country (laughs) yeah exactly yeah uh but yeah i mean i i think new japan will be back next month i mean that's what it sounds like the super jcast people uh you know they're very well connected to new japan and they were dropping they were dropping very obvious hints on their show that like you know maybe two nights in osaka next month will be the thing so. Yeah, I, I, like I've been looking at a lot of the COVID data, and their their cases are so low relative to what the U.S. is, and there's all sorts of factors that may be determining that. But it looks like they're they're you know at least compared to the U.S. and even compared to Mexico, their their cases their prevalence seems to be pretty low at this point. Yeah, they had a minor they've had a minor spike the last two days in Tokyo, which I know really? is, is worrying them a little bit. Now their idea of a minor spike is 30 cases and 28 cases in these two days, which you know I, I wish we had that in New York, honestly. But yeah, yeah, I mean, they're, that's freaked them out a little bit as they're reopening stuff. But uh, you know, o- Osaka, where New Japan's planning to run the show, has had I think like three straight days of no cases. So yeah. it looks like Tokyo is like the hot spot, which it has been all along. But yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, based on how I don't know if you've looked into like the, you know, they have they're doing they're opening in stages, right? So right right, right now it's fifty percent up to one hundred. So you can do 50% of the building capacity up to 100 people. And DDT, mm-hmm. DDT is running a bunch of shows this month, like in small venues like Shinkiba and this even smaller one called the Itabashi Green Hall in Tokyo that are going to be like 100 people max. Um, the next phase after that is 50% up to 1,000, which I think they'll hit you know, if they don't reverse within two weeks. And then another two weeks after that is 50% of the building capacity with no maximum. So that's the one it looks like New Japan is waiting for, because they want to come back with like a big, a big show at Osaka Joe Hall, where you can put like you know three or four thousand in probably. So right. Yeah. So has, has anybody done uh, shows with fans yet in Japan? Yes, because Michinoku Pro did. Uh, it was very limited, but they had dojo shows and they it was open to ten fans. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I think like the I think somebody else is doing. I know Pro Wrestling Wave was doing Shinkiba. I don't know if it happened already or if that's a Joshi promotion. I don't know if it happened already or is about to happen. But yeah, and I think I yeah. you know the, the first ones I've seen on the schedule for sure are DDT and uh, Tokyo Joshi. Noah had a rule about no screaming, which that like that's going to be a rule when they come back, which is going to be something for a wrestling show, especially a Japanese wrestling show because they love yelling the name. But I don't know that'll be weird. But. I guess that's what's going on. But yeah, you totally should go to Japan. Yep. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> it's really yeah. It's a lot. I know it's, what, what it's very expensive, days? but yeah, yeah. Uh, it's really. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like I'm. I'm kind of waiting until I'm old and washed up, so I don't feel like 
I flew myself to Japan, but I didn't wrestle or something. So maybe, oh. uh... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think of that. Yeah, you you could probably get yourself booked on like that, uh, like one of those that that Jimmy Suzuki guy. He runs those indie shows where I feel like a ton of indie wrestlers yeah. go over there and then just like fly themselves over and then just wrestle those shows. Yeah. I think I think there are a lot of people who are a lot of the wrestlers. I the impression I get is a lot of the wrestlers who are not from Japan who end up wrestling in Japan. Uh, on the on the lower level promotions, they they fly themselves there, and, and I, they may or may not make their money back through through wrestling. I don't I don't know what the deal is, but yeah, yeah. I've I've always got the impression that it's like a, it's just kind of like a bucket list thing, and they do it to do it, and yeah. like, you know, they they probably did take a loss on it, but uh, you know, yeah, it, it it's a uh, I think that's just largely kind of a, just a, an international version of what happens for a lot of people in any wrestling in general. Uh, for you know, in the Northeast, for example, a lot of people are driving around. And they're not making a lot of money, if any, or they may be losing money. But, but it's all part of the you know the climb the ladder to get your name out there and to get more bookings and accumulate more and more buzz around you, so that eventually maybe you do start making money, or maybe somebody does sign a contract. You know. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, once you, whenever you do go there, I think you'll have a lot of fun. It's, uh, I mean, it's a really besides the fact that the wrestling scene is like really amazing, and you'll you'll pretty much never go anywhere where you'll see like so many wrestling shows of like such a different you know of like all all very slightly different to and like in all these different venues like i it's it's like it's very close to like i don't know if you've ever been to a wrestlemania weekend but it's like a wrestlemania weekend all the time it's the only way i can put it you know yeah but uh right because there's there's shows at corku and hall like every day right yeah i mean like they on some of these trips i went i've gone to like I think one of them was like 16 shows in like 13 days or something. And I've seen people do more than that. Like I've seen people do like, you know, three shows a day. So, I mean, you can go to a lot of shows if you want to. Yeah, sounds that, amazing. It also adds up though. So, you know, like I've, I've done the budget on some of my trips and like the, the wrestling tickets end up being like a big line item, <laughs> you know, like as far, right. cause like hotel, like, uh, you know, hotel slash Airbnb is a lot cheaper than you might think, and food can be very cheap, uh, especially mm. if you're used to. If you're like me, and you're used to New York City prices. You'd just be like, "What the fuck? Like, how are these prices?" <laughs> yeah. Especially like alcohol too. It's like, what the fuck? But yeah, um, but you know, the the wrestling tickets add up really quickly. But you know, what are you gonna do? Mm-hmm. Uh, before we get into our five matches here, I want to. Very quickly, and I promise it'll be quicker than last week. Plug the Patreon, which just started at Wrestling Omakase. Um, I'm sorry, slash Patreon slash Wrestling Omakase. Uh, we've gotten a very good early response here, and I really want to thank everybody that signed up. Um, you know, it's a it's been a fun. You know, I know there's a lot going on right now. First of all, so you know, I really appreciate it if you decided to, you know, give us a shot and you know give us a chance to entertain you. Um, you know, we've got a lot of stuff up there already. We have the first few episodes of my new series, watching all the Tanahashi Okada matches in order. So the first two episodes are up right now as I'm recording this. The third one on the Dominion 2012 match will be up, you know, uh, tomorrow from when I'm recording this, which might be uh, Friday, Friday, June 5th, might be the same day this goes up. So, you know, that will be up shortly or is already up by the time you hear this. So you have three episodes of that already, you know, in there. Uh, you have the first episode of Anime Omakase, where 
you know, my girlfriend Nicole and I recorded an episode, you know, just as part of a series just on anime. Um, you know, we've had a lot of anime talk on this show before that people seem to enjoy. So I know as soon as I did that, uh, Kevin from the Bad Wrestling Podcast, uh, who's been on this show before, reached out and said we have to do an episode on the completely insane Attack on Titan whenever uh, that finally finishes its run in the manga. So we're definitely going to do that. But yeah, that's a that's a future plan. But yeah, so we have that up. And then next week, we'll have the first exclusive, totally exclusive to the Patreon episode of Wrestling Omikase. Full episode. It will not be on the free feed. It'll be numbered just like this. So episode 148 will be exclusive to Patreon. The only way to get it will be to sign up at patreon.com slash wrestling omikase. It'll be me. It'll be Alan Farrell from the PW Torch, Alan Cunahan, who I'm very excited to have on. And we have a great slate of matches so and and if you sign up for the patreon you get to vote for the fifth match only patrons will be able to vote for the fifth match so uh if you're if you think any of this sounds interesting patreon.com slash wrestling omakase it's only five dollars a month you get access to everything we have on there only five dollars a month uh the alan episode the tanahashi okada series and anime omakase plus uh in the future extra coverage of tournaments and um, you know, I might be doing something, uh, for, we just talked about the DDT shows reopening. I'm thinking of doing like a, like a live reaction for the first show, you know, with not the first show with crowd, but the first show with a significant crowd back in Japan. I thought that'd be fun to do. So that'll all be on the Patreon, patreon.com slash wrestling omakase. The link will also be in the show description. $5 a month gets you all that. So definitely check it out. All right, let's get into the five matches we are talking about here today. Uh, the first one it was your first pick. Toshiaki Kawada and Akira Tawe versus Mitsuharu Misawa and Kenta Kobashi. All Japan for Wrestling, June 9th, 1995. I usually ask guests, like, why did you pick this match and what made you want to talk about it or what made you want to, you know, have me or the listeners, you know, watch it. But, like, I don't know if I really need to ask that question for this match because it's, like, it's, like, the canon greatest tag team match of all time. Uh, I mean, it's... I don't really know if you have to explain yourself here, but go ahead. Why did you pick? (laughs) I just kind of picked two of my favorite matches off the top of my head or, you know, the the third one, uh, I just kind of picked, you know, I guess I, I picked sort of two older matches relative to, you know, a lot of stuff from modern times but I, I guess i picked one that was a little bit newer but uh but yeah this is uh kawada and Tawe against kabashi masawa and like the and, and you you mentioned it as you know it has this um i don't know it has this sort of subtitle to it and i wondered if, if everybody got got that message like i remember a, a, a website called ultimo tape world i think it was called or ultimo tapes and they were they kind of marketed it and it's not probably known this was illegal but they kind of marketed it as the greatest tag match of all time or the greatest tag match ever and i don't know if that was like a Meltzer thing and then of course there was also the greatest singles match ever and that's the 6394 masala versus kawada singles match so i I wonder like where that comes from because i really have no idea again i don't know if it's a Meltzer thing if Meltzer maybe said it was the greatest tag match you'd ever seen at that point or, I'm pretty sure. What? I'm pretty sure it was because I remember. So I I don't know if you know this, but after the Revolution pay per view this year, right? Dave said the Omega Page versus Young Bucks match was the greatest ma- tag match ever, and it led to right. a lot of angry tweets. Which of I don't I don't know why people even get worked out about you know Dave and a 
you know, Kenny and Bucks match at this point. It's like you have to expect it. Like, before that match took place, I was like, he's probably going to say this is the best tag match of all time. But uh, I still I still haven't seen that match. I can't I can't say anything about its quality. I mean, you could... What do you? Which which is better, Brandon? Give me your answer. I, I don't. I don't. That's from the AEW pay per view. I didn't see. Yeah. It. Okay. Well, there you go. Neither one of us has seen it. So. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. So this this tag match, um, I think it was a Dave thing. It's been like one of those things that I also just think like you know got a life of its own on the internet. And in nineties all Japan is like just a very beloved era of wrestling i know like speaking of our guest for next week on the patreon alan when alan recently said a couple years ago that he thinks like this era of new japan that we're currently in was better i don't know if he said it was as good at or good as or better than 90s all japan like that caused like a massive meltdown on twitter because like this era is just like so you know um you know put on such a pedestal that I think for a lot of people, it just was almost sacrilegious to say that. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, mean, I, I pulled up the Observer for where he reviews it. I'm, I'm just scanning it. I don't see him saying it's the greatest tag match he's ever seen, but he did give it the five stars with the plus after all the asterisks. Yeah. So, there you go. I know he said it at some point, but I could be wrong, I guess. Um, I think it won match of the year that year, too, right? 95? What wins in 95? Not this match. Oh, wow. Um... Wins in ninety five. Ninety four, the ladder match with Michaels and, and Razor Ramon wins. Yeah. I, I used to, I used to have this stuff memorized. The nineteen ninety five Wrestling Observer match of the year. Uh, I, I can tell you I have it in front of me. Oh, okay. Actually the match they picked is uh also a very, very famous match and I'm not surprised it beat this, I guess, but uh it's a it's a women's match. Oh it's uh okay, it's Minami Toyota versus Kyoko Inoue yeah. in our draw. Yeah. Yeah. From May seventh in Tokyo. Yeah, so, no, nobody talks about that match, at least in, in places I pay attention to anymore. Uh, it might be on next week's episode. Oh. <laughs> let me, <laughs> let me good. Let me see though. He picked something. I, it might have been this. I'm gonna check. If if he didn't pick it, then I'm definitely gonna put it on something. Uh, oh no, no, never mind. I'm sorry. He picked uh, Hokoto versus Kazama '93 hair match. But uh, yeah, this is a, you know. This is a that's a very famous match as well, so I'm not really surprised that one match of the year. I I would bet this finished second. I I don't know that because it finished. So I've I've got the uh, oh. the old Mookie uh, Chris Harrington list up here. So this match finished fourth. Wow. Ahead of ahead of it is a uh, a Rey Mysterio versus Psychosis match. It's in Philadelphia, so that's got to be ECW on October seventh, nineteen ninety five. Uh, ahead of that, in number two is Shawn Michaels Razor Ramon at SummerSlam ladder match rematch, and then number one, as you mentioned, is Minami Toyota and Kyoko in a way. Yeah, I guess I'm not surprised that by the HBK Razor Ramon ladder match, but I'm surprised that maybe Stereo Psychosis match. But anyway, yeah, do, it's, probably, do, it's, it's 95, so there's probably a little bit more U.S. readership, or there's probably just more readers or voters who are not getting Japanese tapes. I would guess. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, like Japan did really well in the 90s in that award, but like, yeah, that's probably true. Because you look at the the if you look at the the nineties. Well, then again, uh, Minami Toyota and Kyoko in a way won won the awards. So yeah, I, that, that kind of invalidates that. Okay. Yeah, uh, the because the following year will be won by an all Japan tag match: Masao and Akiyama against uh, Steve Williams and Johnny Ace. Yeah, and then yeah, so, so like the the big famous match from '96 to me is the Akiyama and uh, Masao versus Tawe and Kawada uh, tag league final. Yeah, but that's actually counting in '97. I forgot because of the weird observer calendar. Yeah. 
which he needs to stop doing. He still does that. No, 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 he doesn't. He changed it finally. Oh, he stopped doing it. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, then Kobashi Masawa wins in 98 and 99. Uh, But yeah, I mean, I think think Puro has dominated his awards overall. There was like a long stretch where like no Puro match won. But if you look at that stretch, it's from like 05 through 2011. But then like the 05, 06, and 07 matches are all Ring of Honor matches that have Japanese wrestlers in them. It's like right. Kobashi versus Joe, the famous Dragon Gate Six-Man, and Morishima versus Danielson. So, mm-hmm. I don't know if you could even really... I mean, it's America, but it's like, you know, it's really both. And then, But then WWE had that four-year run where they won with uh, jericho Sean ladder match, two years in a row, Undertaker, Sean, and Punk, Cena. And then mm-hmm. you get into the run where New Japan's won every year since 2012. So... Yeah. That'd be a fun trivia. Can you do you know, do you remember the matches that won every year? You said you used to remember this stuff. Sorry, uh, remember what the match like the, the, like the NJPW wait, you matches? Could, you, you could. Oh, like how the New Japan uh, starting what year? Like twenty from when they started winning in twenty twelve. Twenty twelve. Oh, they start okay. Twenty twelve is that Minoru Suzuki and Tanahashi. Yeah. King, uh, King, of, King of Pro Wrestling. 13 is that uh shibata and ishii no 13 is tanahashi okada invasion attack which i cannot right. i can't blame them on that one that's their best match so okay 14 is that tanahashi and okada in the tokyo dome nope it's aj and minoru suzuki oh right right because right. I, I think i voted for that okay um, um 15 back on tanahashi in the tokyo dome Right. No, 15 is Nakamura Bushi. Okay, right. Yep. I'm doing terrible here. Uh, 16. That's got to be Okada. In yes. yes. That is Okada Tanahashi. Right. They had so many in the Tokyo. Um, <laughs> so 18. Well, 17. 18, 17. 17 is, is it Kenny Omega and Okada. Yes, which one? But which one? Uh, Dominion? Nope, it's the Tokyo Dome. The Tokyo Dome, which I I agree with as as their best of those three that year. I don't agree that's the 2017 match of the year. It's uh, mm. 2017 match of the year is something else, but I don't remember what I voted for. But yeah, it's uh that's definitely the best of the three, I think. But yeah, 28, 19, well, 18, 18. Did did Omega and Okada have a match in 18? Yeah, the two out of three falls Dominion, and that's the match of the year, right? Yeah. Okay, and then 19 is that. It's not Osprey and Shingo, is it? It, it is. Yep. It is. Okay. Yeah. So that's the big New Japan run. Uh, Going to rebrand the trivia podcast. But yeah. yeah, there's only two other ones on the Force Wrestling Network. But yeah, uh, that's a that's a fun little run, right? That New Japan. I now here's a great question: Will they make it one, two, three, four, five, six? Will they make it nine in a row this year? Because they've been shut down for so long. But on the other hand, they have some. They already have some really strong contenders. Probably because you figure they're probably going to have more. Japan is probably going to have more time with fans in attendance than the U.S. will, and and Japan is already seeming to be in an advantage anyway with this population, so population of voters, right? Yeah. So I mean, like who would who would beat them out? Like NXT seems to have diminished in its reception in, in the last you know little while, and W main roster can't touch it. I think it's just um, AEW. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose. So I think because like if you if you held it right now, I think either Okada Naito, Okada Ibushi, or that the tag match you just mentioned, the Bucks against yeah. Omega yeah. and Page. I think one of those three would win That's for true. sure. 
That's so, true. The only thing would be if those two Wrestle Kingdom main events might split the vote, kind of. But yeah, but yeah, and there's like you're saying, there's still probably going to be time for them to have something else. But uh, you know, I guess we'll see. I mean, if I had to guess right now, I would yeah. I would guess Okada. They, they've got, we've got ranked voting in the Wrestling Observer. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, but for, fortunately, the Wrestling Observer, Wrestling Observer has ranked voting, unlike U.S. elections. So I think there'll be the splitting of the vote is not as much of a risk. That's true. I mean, there are there are some people that might not just vote for that might only vote for one of them because they like want to bounce their ballot, you know? Mm. But, yeah, yeah. But anyway, uh, I forget. We're, we're so we were just introducing this match still, uh, which was yeah. Obviously, Kawada and Tao against Masao and Kabashi. Um, yeah, so the ba- got, I, I, and I also just noticed that when I sat down to watch these matches this afternoon, that there's three Toshiaki Kawada matches here. Yeah. Well, you picked two of them, and I was like, I did. I might as well just join the party. Um, yeah. It is, it is true that Kawada, people will sometimes ask me, who's your favorite wrestler? I'm like, man, I don't know. I, yeah, I guess Kawada. Probably Kawada. Yeah. Kawada, see, he was never my favorite when I first started watching Japanese wrestling. I, I always liked Masao and Kobashi and even Akiyama better. But mm-hmm. but he's still, I mean, you know, what am I going to I'm going to sit here and tell you Kawada's not good. I mean, he's awesome. <laughs> but... it, 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 it took me a little while to like him as much as I came to like him. Because I think, and it's, I think it kind of ties into what we can talk about you know, Paul, while going through these matches here, is I think the, the most interesting story to me in, in like wrestling history is, is the story of Kawada and Masawa. Um, and, and a big focal point of it is, is this match where it's 1995 and Kawada and Masawa are on opposite teams. And some people probably know that Kawada and Masawa had been uh, high school wrestling teammates. Like Masao is a year older, so they they'd gone to the same high school. They had been on the same wrestling team, and uh, they had known each other since since that time. They were tag partners in the early '90s, and they won the titles and they had a successful run. And then, they, but then they split off. Masao taking Kobashi as his partner, and Kawada taking Tawei as his partner. And uh, in 19, it's, it's June 9th, 1995, and Kawada still has never scored a pinfall against Masawa. So yeah. not it's not just that Kawada has never beaten Masao in a singles match, which is also true. But he's never pinned him in any sort of tag match at all. Right. And, you know, I mean, their relationship is so interesting because I almost think you might not get it all the way unless you understand like how important seniority is in like Japanese society. And like, they always had that you know, Misawa was always a senpai was basically the thing. Yeah. And like, that is a very interesting dynamic with the two of them and how they became you know such humo- such enormous rivals throughout the entire 90s in all japan and you know they, by the end of it they were such bitter rivals that kawada wouldn't even go with him to noah and you know in real like it, it spilled into real life and i don't think people quite realize you know like they like kawada basically always felt like a little brother it's the way the easiest way to put it i think for yeah and it's like you know it, it very much he felt that way because that's what their original relationship was in school, and he felt that way because that's what their relationship was essentially in all Japan. So you know, yeah, um, yeah, and like, and like some of this is, I mean, in Japan, especially this time, there isn't like storyline, even to the extent that I think there is in New Japan, you know, modern days. There's just sort of matches, and there's really sort of subtle. You kind of the more you invest in, the more time you spend watching and understanding what the dynamics are the more the more rewarding it is and the more you like get what the stories are but um you know there's there's a lot of real life stuff 
uh, besides the you know the wrestling part of it in that and I, I just don't know what the answers are maybe you do john but uh the, like the most interesting autobiography i wish i'd read and i don't know if he's even written one is, is kawada's if it's but if, if he has written one it's probably japanese right now has been translated to english um i just i'm so curious about what their relationship was like what led to you know masawa in the year 2000 obviously he, he splits off from all japan and decides to form noah but, but Kawada, along with Fuji and, and the referee Kyo Iwata, are the only people, who, are the only Japanese who are left behind. And I just, I'm so curious about like what was the relationship and why was there such a, a rift there? Why was there such a problem where they apparently by 2000, you know, hated each other? Yeah, I everything I've heard is that hate is a strong word, but like mm-hmm. they just, you know, they he always just felt like, uh, like I said, like a, a, a big brother, little brother kind of thing, and you know they. They did kind of reconcile later on because you know Kawada right. did come into Noah yeah. for that little run, but yeah. yeah, I mean it was a it was a very strained relationship by the end for I mean, sure. Maybe it's like people would always compare it to like Brett Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. Yeah, I don't think it was ever that. From what I, everything I've read and heard, mm-hmm. I don't think it was that they they ever really reached that amount of animosity. They, but, they never had a, a pull apart brawl where uh, where Kawada came away with a handful of Masawa's hair. Yeah, nothing like that. And by the way, he does have a Japanese autobiography. Does he? Uh, yeah, it was written in 2003. Wow. It's called Dangerous K, obviously. Oh, wow. Obviously. It was written in 2003. Yeah, hmm. in Japanese. Yeah. I've, I've seen some, some translated quotes from him. Just like, I think there's a, um, obviously there, there's like a Masawa bot Twitter. I don't know if you know about that one. I think that's pretty cool. Where like, there's all these quotes from Masawa. And fortunately with Twitter, you can hit the translate button. You can see so there's sort of a translated version of what he's saying. But I, I saw a, a quote translated by someone, I think on Twitter, where Kawada, this is after Masawa has passed away, and it's sort of after Kawada has stopped wrestling, where apparently Kawada says something to the effect of, you know, at, you know, he felt so bonded to Masawa, I guess, even though they were apart for all those years after 2000. But he, he felt such a, you know, such a, a, a reason for being just through Masawa also being there in the industry. So where when after Masao died, Kawada said something to the effect of that he felt like he didn't have as much of a reason to wrestle anymore. And Kawada just sort of, Kawada doesn't have like a spectacular retirement or anything. He doesn't have a retirement match or retirement ceremony as far as I'm aware. He just sort of quietly stops wrestling in about, is it like 2012 or it's something tw- like I think that? it's earlier than that. I think it's 2010. It's like really, okay. it's really soon after uh, Masao dies, I believe. Let me just double check it. I was just looking at it the other day. Yeah. Um, so Masawa dies in what June June two thousand nine, right? Yeah, yeah, two thousand nine. And then let me just double check this. I'm pretty sure I could be wrong, but I think it's mm-hmm. uh, I think it's pretty early. Okay, uh, caveman twenty. And Masawa, of course, p- passes away after taking a back suplex. Uh, yeah. In a, basically, was it a TV or a house show? Because there is there's I, I've seen the, the footage where it's after. It's I believe happened. I think it's a house show. I think so. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so it's August fifteenth, twenty ten, and it's a That's new, his last match. It's his last match. It's a New Japan show of all things. It's uh, mm. Genushio Tenru, Tiger Mask, and Kawada beating Akira, Ricky Choshu, and Super Strong Machine. So mm. eight eight minutes long, six man tag. So wow. Uh, yeah. But he was in the like twenty ten. He it was like his last big New or Noah run, where he's in the Global League that year earlier that year. So he's like. That's basically it for him after that. And then he does some more Noah shows in July, and he does that one New Japan date, which is, a, I guess, the G1 final, probably. It was G1 Night 8 in Sumo Hall. And then that's mm. it. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, he was already out of All Japan by that point. Like, if you look at his his last All Japan date is like two, April two thousand eight, where he does the Champion Carnival, and then he's gone, and he's in uh, he's in Hustle. He does the G one in two thousand eight, which I remember people being kind of disappointed by, and then he does a, like Lock Up for Ricky Choshu, and the he's zero one World Heavyweight Champion twenty ten weirdly, which I always forget mm. he had that title, and that's pretty much it. So. Uh, but yeah, so it's not a, definitely, he retired, like, yeah, that quote is, you know, very, very poignant, I guess, because he did retire, like, a year after Masawa died, it looks like, so, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I guess, back to what you're talking about, like, the internal stories of these matches and stuff, like, it's not, it's, these stories aren't hard to follow, but, like, I do think, like, having a little bit of that knowledge going in just adds a ton to the match, um, you know, you can look at the story here twofold. I mean, first of all, like you said, Kawada has never pinned Masawa. That's the big, big story. The other part of it is, if you notice, like, Tawei is, like, extra grumpy in this match. He's very mad because he lost to Masawa in the Champion Carnival Final in April. Right. So, like, right, he yeah. was, like, on, like, kind of a little mini rampage after that. So yeah. that's kind of why he went, like, you know. I mean, Kawada and Tawei are... Like, even though what you're saying is true, like, you know, there was, there's less stories and stuff, they are unquestionably the heels of this match. I mean, they work this match as complete heels, and they're, you know, they work over... Masawa has a broken orbital bone, which was given to him by Kawada, and Kobashi In this had, match? No, but going into oh. this match. Okay. But, but Kawada targets that, you know, throughout the match, which is mm. almost like an extra fuck you, because it's like, well, I'm the one who gave this to you, so I'm going to keep going after it, too. Uh, and Kobashi has the the taped up knee, which yeah. I think is yeah, that's very obvious. I think to anyone watching, um, but yeah. So Masao and Kobashi are the reigning tag champions here. Masao has also won the triple crown title for the second time uh, from Stan Hansen a month earlier, which I guess you could argue made this result not really in doubt because they. So so the way All Japan always used the tag titles is they used it as the way New Japan would use the Intercontinental, right? As like a secondary drawing title that could yeah. main event big shows. So I, I think this is one of the last times that that title main events Budokan. I think maybe the match that we mentioned in 96, the 6-7-96 with Johnny Ace and Steve Williams against Masao and Akiyama, that might have been the main event also. But yeah, it was often a main event, the tag title match. Yeah. So it was kind of, I think, almost like, okay, well, of course Masao is not going to hold the tag titles for much longer when he just won the Triple Crown. Mm. So you could argue that the result was kind of a given here, but the, the crowd did not seem to think so. The crowd was, like, obviously going completely crazy. I mean, one of the things that really stands out about this match is it's 42 minutes long, and yeah. this crowd is up for, like, all 42 minutes. And I kind of wanted to ask you, like, as a wrestler, like, can you imagine just working in front of a crowd, like, this hot for this sustained amount of time to the point where, like, everything you're doing... And obviously these four, like, four of the greatest of all time, so I'm not trying to take away from, like, their... Uh, you know their contribution to the crowd being that hot but the crowd also just already cares so much about these four guys like on a level that you know crowds do not generally care about professional wrestlers that like it must yeah. be a, it, can you imagine what it'd be like to wrestle in front of a crowd like that yeah so like i'm such a mark for the the budokan especially all japan wrestling at the budokan in the 90s like that's my favorite era of wrestling that's you know that's i guess that's why i picked this as sort of the exemplar match for for that era um i'm, I'm such a fan of, of this stuff and this time that I, I at one point on ebay i found it is now 
hanging on my on my wall the uh, the program for the the June 8 1990 Budokan uh card with of course that has the the Masao and Jumbo uh match where Masao upset upsets Jumbo and basically starts this era of wrestling and um but I, I think what, what makes this match so so over with this crowd it's not just of course the the execution of of these four wrestlers having the great match but it's uh it's the stage that's set for them by everything that precedes this and sort of the booking uh, these guys being protected as and built up as stars and and especially the feud between Masao and Kawada in my view uh, of you know having this huge rivalry and even the, the the stuff with Kobashi and there's great tag matches between this pair of, of te- teams before this and uh, I think it's December 3rd 1993 with their their world tag league match and oh is it May 21st 1994 where they have an, another uh, world title match where Kobashi and both of those matches Kobashi gets the pin so it's sort of you know even you know Masawa's partner is pinning both of these guys but um yeah, I just think it's it's the overall booking that really is a is a symbiotic thing that makes makes this match as great as it is, as great as the execution may be in this match, and as great as the performances you know bell to bell may be. Uh, what really helps it is that there's a strong creative vision that makes people emotionally invested in what's about to happen. You know, I think I've, I've heard people say, you know, once once you're over. You can kind of break all the rules. You know, we train people that there's certain things you're, you're supposed to do and some certain things you're not supposed to do. But once you're over, you can kind of break the rules more and you can kind of experiment more. You know, people who are super over could almost break all the rules and, and it's okay because they've already gotten over. And, and a lot of times the trick that we're trying to do is to get over in the first place to make people care about us, you know. Um, there are occasions where people have matches who nobody knows who these people are at the beginning of it. And by the time it's over, you know, they're, they're over and people care about them. Um, but that's a harder thing to do than, you know, I think every wrestler kind of wishes to be in the sort of situation that in a, in a situation like this, where you're going into the main event of, of you know, of a hot crowd, 16,000 people. Or maybe it's fourteen, as we've we've heard. Maybe these numbers are somewhat exaggerated. We've learned, but but yeah. But anyway, a hot crowd, and it's probably sold out, and and people perceive all of the players here as just huge stars, and that's when you can execute something that is really special and really dramatic and really emotional. Yeah, I mean, there's a, I wrote down so many spots for this match, but like a great example of what you're talking about is like really like almost right at the start, Kawada, you know takes the opportunity to boot Masawa off the apron when he started in the ring with with uh, Kobashi. And this crowd reacts like they just saw the fucking candy assassination. They're like, they're, <laughs> they fucking freak out. And they're like, everybody gasps. Yeah. And like, like, all I did was boot this man off the apron. But like, the crowd just like completely loses their mind over this. And it's, uh, you know, all the wrestlers also just treat it like, you know, like, how dare you? Basically, it's a reaction. And uh, it's, it's really like something. And then when Masawa tags in right after... You know, the crowd just goes completely nuts for that. And, you know, after they have a little fun little exchange, Kawada boots Kobashi off the apron, and then everybody gets in the ring, and that brings Taui in the ring too. And there's, like, this really tense standoff, and you just feel like that of, you know, that moment of, like, there's so much, like, drama here, and there's so much already so much history between these four guys that, like, you know, even the most minor yeah. thing is just such a big deal to this crowd. But... Right, and I think an- another thing that, stands out in this match is just how how versatile tag wrestling is uh, like obviously economically the thing that people really care about 
especially in the U.S. in in you know last few decades, and I think especially in Northeast wrestling. And there's there's in the territory days in the South, I think it's a little bit different where tag wrestling gets more more featured. But and and it and earlier in the in the period just before this in Japan, and like we were saying, this is kind of the last time I think that uh, one of the last times anyway that a, a big tag match made events in the Budokan. But but anyway, my my point is. There's so much more dramatic options and dramatic tools in a tag match just because you have sort of this theatrical uh, ability to make people enter and exit and to do things like you just mentioned where uh, Kawada just, you know, unsuspectingly kicks Kobashi in the face and knocks him off the apron. And you have this great moment where Kobashi has this, this you know, to me, is a really memorable facial expression where he sort of like puts his hand to, to his mouth and has this like look of disgust, like how offended he is at the fact that Kawada, you just kicked him in the face and Kawada, of course, just, just stares at him blankly, you know? <laughs> and I think when people talk about Kawada being like stoic or he has no emotion, I think that's kind of like a, a superficial reading of, of what he does. And, and I think you would, you would think that after seeing only a couple Kawada matches. But the, the great thing about All Japan in the 90s is the more you watch this stuff, the more you're able to appreciate things, the more, more of a wider view you have of what's going on, what everything means. So what I'm, what I'm trying to say is Kawada, I think, is just very efficient with, with his I don't know, facial expressions or emotional expression where a very little amount means a lot. Or even not having an expression seems like cold and like i don't fucking care fuck you that it, it sort of says words to you with with a simple expression or almost no expression right um so the, one of my favorite signatures of all time happens very very early as well and you have to give almost as much credit uh to the production people in the sequence as you do to the wrestlers because man they hit they hit these camera angles amazing during this so masawa fakes out that he's gonna do a dive on Tawe. yeah he yeah. stops on the apron he flips backwards and at the same time he flips backwards to the ring kobashi does a shoulder block on uh on Tawe on, from the apron to the floor and then masawa back in the ring elbows kawada down when he rushes him and then does and then does a dive on Tawe on the floor so the production team they pick like the perfect like diagonal camera angle to catch all of this action at once and i feel like this is something a lot of modern uh wrestling is terrible at like they're really awful at capturing multiple um you know multiple things going on at once like multiple uh like little fights or little uh exchanges at the same time like i feel like you yeah. always end up missing one or the other because everybody's always like they're so focused on zooming in that you always yeah. miss one or the other so and then, like the shot that you're talking about, like if people can imagine, basically, if you haven't seen this match, it's basically I don't know where the camera really is, but it looks like it's shooting down from the balcony. Yeah, uh, it's 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 not quite a bird's eye. Like later, I've I've seen like in '99 they have like this bird's eye, or even in the early '90s I think they have this you know straight down shot on the ring. But this is like you know like you said, it's it's on the corner and it's sort of on a 45 degree angle looking now down on the ring, and and you just see Masawa float all over the ring and do the spot that you just described. It's amazing. It makes me really wonder why the why the hell no one does this camera angle anymore. Like Japan right. doesn't do it either. It's I don't like New Japan doesn't do this or yeah, no, or yeah. all Japan. But yeah, I mean, it's you know what it's almost like. It's it's, it's almost like the Fire Pro Wrestling camera angle. Ever, right. Yeah. yeah. I guess that's, ever, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, but uh, it's a really good job by the production team. Um, after that, Kawada starts like really punishing Kobashi's bandaged leg, and that will become a theme throughout. And you know, I I don't think again not breaking any news to say that Kenta Kobashi is really good at selling, uh, but he is really fucking good at selling in this match. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just his faces and everything, it just makes you 
you know, really feel like the like you're like you can really feel his pain basically, which I guess is the entire idea. Um, yeah. But yeah, so there's I'm just scrolling through all my notes here because I made so many. Uh, like there's one spot where like Kawada goes really hard at Masawa and his broken orbital bone in the corner, and the crowd gets really mad about this and like they're really fucking pissed and I, I assume that part of it isn't just like oh he's not giving the break like part of it is they know that he has his broken orbital bone from Kawada and they're like really fucking furious about it um but yeah like it's all just like very I don't know how else to put it but like very raw and like very heated and like mm-hmm. every, like you really it doesn't feel you know like corny wrestling anger the way a lot of uh wrestling nowadays can sort of feel like it just feels very much like these people really want to be each other's asses so yeah uh, yeah no, i don't want to sound like uh you know some kind of like purist on like only japanese wrestling is the best but like there's so much of it that that, that appeals to me just because it's understated and it's not uh i guess like what joanne's would call the subtlety hammer where they're, they're like pounding at home so you can't possibly miss it you know it, it's a uh, it's just a different approach to wrestling where they um, sort of expect the audience to, to know certain things where I think in, in U.S. wrestling and U.S. influenced wrestling, there's always this fear that, well, what if somebody's watching for the first time? We have to make everything super obvious. Uh, if there's ever any podcast where you don't have to worry about offending anybody by saying uh, Japanese wrestling is the best, <laughs> you're you're on the right one, sir. Don't worry. But, but yes, uh, you, you wouldn't be the first person to express that viewpoint but um at one point tower like tosses masawa down onto kobashi's leg with like a sort of like sto and it's like that looks so badass and it's like again not a spot you really see anymore and it's just one of those things where i'm like there's a lot of spots the more i do this project of like watching older matches and a lot of random like really high level matches i'm like why are wrestlers not stealing some of these spots i don't understand but, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I guess I could. I can tell you this. Like, I there's a match I had. Um, I think last year September. It's, it feels like so long ago, right? Because there's all this shit has happened since then. Yeah. I think it's last year September. Um, for Empire State Wrestling, where where I have like a Butcher and the Blade versus me and Daniel Garcia, where like I I stole some of this stuff here that that, that I I remember from this match, but um, just stuff like getting peeled away. Sort of jumping ahead, but where you know towards the end where. Uh, Kawada and Tawei just peel Kobashi away from from Masawa. There's all this great imagery of like I think I think there's like one possible reading of this match is just thinking about the relationships between the partners, where Kobashi and the structure. By the way, let me say this first: like the structure of this match is very different from what a typical U.S. tag wrestling structure is, as far as far as I was taught. You know, you do a you do a shine, baby faces. You know, bump everybody around, then they get cut off. Then there's a heat, and there's all this keep away, and then there's hot tag, and all this happens, right? But there's sort of um, it almost feels like the mission is to fuck up Masawa and and make sure we you know Kawada gets his first ever pin that he's been chasing for all these years. Um, and there's there's all this sacrifice and and desperate, you know, Kobashi trying to save Masawa and Kawada and Tawe making sure that. Kobashi's knee is destroyed so that he can't save Masawa, you know. So, so there's kind of a heat on Kobashi. There's all this sympathy and all this pain put on Kobashi so that he can't make the save, as opposed to like you know putting the heat on the person who's legal and in the ring and building up to this big hot tag, you know. Yeah, it's just just a, a different sort of structure there. Um, 
but yeah, I think there's all this stuff like sort of playing out in, in terms of the relationship between the partners where, again, Kobashi is trying to save Masawa and, and just like literally like, there's three amazing moments that, I, that are some three of the most amazing and like um, memorable moments to me as a wrestling viewer of Kobashi just laying his body over Masawa as he's getting stomped by the other guys and holding on to his leg as he gets power bombed. Um, and then, then there's all this action where Telway, you know, comes in there to counteract Kobashi and just fucking kill him. The moment that, that you mentioned a minute ago where he grabs Masawa or grabs Kobashi by the neck and sort of gives him the Nodoa. It's not like actually a choke slam where he picks him up, but he just kind of like shoves him down. Um, maybe confusing that. But yeah. the, the, point, <laughs> the point is, the point is, you know, you know Talway gets in there and just like fucks up Kobashi all the time to, to try to leave Kawada and Masawa alone so he can finish him off. Yeah. And Kobashi's, like I said, his selling was so amazing, and he does a really incredible job, like, staggering around on one leg and still having an awesome match. And, like, I feel like one of the defenses you hear over and over again of bad leg selling nowadays is, mm-hmm. like, oh, well, they the match quality would be hurt if they didn't sell the leg, if they sold the leg, you know, you know, uh, completely consistently, or, you know, they can't get their shit in. And it's like, well, you need to watch some Kenta Kobashi. I don't know what to tell you. There's plenty of ways to do wrestling moves where you're still, like, being, you know, you're, you're still selling the leg. Uh, you know, these guys, these guys that completely shrug it off and then get back to it when, uh, you know. And not, not that this is a Japanese versus America thing. There's plenty of Japanese wrestlers who do this nowadays, too. And, that you know, it's very annoying for me as a viewer. But I'm sure it is very hard. You know, I don't know if the last time you tried to do like a leg selling match. I'm sure it is one of the hardest part things to do in wrestling, but like many people are bad at it nowadays, is my point. Yeah. Um, sometimes it, like, uh, it'll come up as like, you think I should work over the leg? And, and somebody will be like, well, I think that shuts down on my offense. I don't know. Um, it is something that comes up and that I've, I try to advise people about and that, um, at, at a certain point, if you're trying to get over on the indies and on the super indies, or the super fans are watching, you will, you will uh, be wrestling before a, at least a part of the audience that will really care about that. And and in a, in a wrestling world where maybe your internet buzz and how much you know everybody agrees that you're an awesome wrestler kind of matters, or, or matters in certain situations. That yeah, the, there will be certain fans who will pay attention to that, and there will be certain fans who will really appreciate that if you do that well. Um, but I think the, the overriding measurement is like, does the match get over? Does the match get over, first of all, with, with the crowd? And does the match get over with the people who are watching it? So, I mean, whatever satisfies that um, right. that, that condition, I think, is generally you've, you've met the requirement of what, you're, what you were supposed to do in that match. Right, like yeah. like being on a, being a huge nerd who breaks stuff down on the podcast can't yeah. be the target audience. Otherwise, you know, well, it's no. I mean, like you have to like. There's plenty of matches that get over in the building that you know I can't stand. So it's like very much a a separate thing, right? And it's like yeah. you know you're Absolutely. always gonna you're always gonna have different nerds who have different tastes, and you know some you know th- I happen to be a nerd that cares a lot about like selling, but there might be another nerd who's like you know there's these people who are like really into like the quality of punches and stuff so you're never gonna Mm -hmm. like uh you're never gonna get 
like approval from all these different types of people simultaneously. So you have to mm-hmm. go for the whatever crowd you're in front of at that point. Yeah, but right. we should try to satisfy everybody as much as possible. I think it's just really easy to get into this mentality of like dismiss all these fucking marks. We have these criticisms. They don't know what the fuck they're talking about. But there's uh, the, the I think you want to try to satisfy everybody as much as possible, or at least I think the 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 thing that's happening for some people who have those criticisms if they are genuine is that the suspension of disbelief is being broken for them mm-hmm. and that's one of the keys to making emotional connections i think is that you our, our job is to help people you know to put on something dramatic and emotionally engaging but then to you know to preserve this suspension of disbelief so that people can be emotionally engaged in it and if you're breaking people's uh, suspension of disbelief you're you know you're breaking their ability to to have that connection Right, that's a good yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um, but yeah, I guess back to this match in particular. Let me see. The, I mean, there's so much stuff, like you said, towards the end. But uh, there's like this. I guess towards the very end, there's like this really badass double spot of like a Nodora Toshi and Power Bomb uh, yeah. simultaneously that Masawa still kicks out of. Um, <laughs> and, Do you know Japanese? You study Japanese, haven't you? Uh, I. So, do I know Japanese? No. Am I studying Japanese? Yes. That's the that's so, the answer. I, I know what I've, I've watched this match like probably dozens of times. But what I noticed for the first time when I watched this is where they do that um that the back suplex choke slam combo. The commentator calls it the something ninety five, the something special ninety five. Did you catch that? No, I didn't catch it. <laughs> I, I've never I, I've never known that move to have one of those. You know, obviously there's like the Tiger Driver ninety one. There's the Tiger Suplex eighty five. Yeah. But he, he called it the something ninety five. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I didn't catch that, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I so so I don't I don't speak Japanese, but I try to pronounce the words that uh you know the right the right the way there's. I, I know a very little bit. Like I, I guess I guess I caught that he said what what how do you say it's like I don't know ninety five. I just noticed it. I don't, it's ku something. I, uh yeah, be kuju kuju go. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but yeah. Um, you know, I'm studying it. It's very difficult. <laughs> so, so people always ask me, like, I remember Rich from uh, when I first started studying it or, like, was six months in, like, Rich from the Voice of Wrestling flagship was like, hey, uh, I've been thinking of studying it. Should I, you know, it, what should, what's an easy way to study? I'm like, there is no easy way to study it. <laughs> it is uh, a, lot of, a lot of work to, to even get to what I would call, like, a, I always joke, like, a second grade level. So yeah, I, mean, I I got to the point where like I can I can read most katakana and I can mm-hmm. because the nice thing about that is like it's usually um, referencing originally English words right so yeah or European but yeah 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 and um and I can recognize some like I can recognize some names in kanji yeah. I mean, so the reading to me is actually the easiest part, and it's weird because yeah. for a lot of people it's very difficult. But I, I have a very easy time memorizing kanji and stuff. I, I think I'm up to like 500 or something. But the hardest part for me is like the speech, and like not even just speaking, but also like being able to listen and like figure out what they're saying, especially when they talk very quickly. So. Um, you know, that's basically been my hardest part. But, like, as far as, like, reading and writing, I'm doing, I'm a lot further ahead of that than I am with, like, uh, you know, like, speaking. So, yeah, I guess it's just different people learn different things. Uh, this reminds me of a story. I have, so, we were talking, I think this is before we started recording. We're, were, were we recording already? Yes, we were. We were talking about uh, George Mayfield. Yeah. At the same after-party bar, probably a different after-party of a different event. But anyway, uh, 
Kudo, right? Is that his name? Yeah, uh, from, from the D- from DDT DT, wrestler. Yeah. Yeah. So he was wrestling for this promotion in Rochester, and like, you know, he was like a Japanese guy who was like kind of alone. And so, like, I don't, me and my, like, I, I think my, one of my friends is also a wrestler, doesn't wrestle anymore. Like, we sort of like tried to make friends with them, and I was like showing off to him that like I, I knew how to write pro wrestling in, in, in uh, Katakana. So, and then like, I think, I think we like, we wrote down swear words to each other, and he was teaching me something, <laughs> some sort of Japanese swear words or something. I don't remember. It's yeah. funny. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult language. It's funny that the, the thing, the one that I struggle the most with reading weirdly is katakana. I don't know why, but really? like, but like the hiragana, very easy. Kanji, really? very easy. But katakana, I always get them confused. I don't know, no real idea. Like the, I, some of them look so fucking similar that like, yeah. I, like I always get like the, like the soul and the N confused and stuff like that. Yeah, that's true. Well, there's like the... We're we're really engaging now. We're we're talking about how to how to write. Yeah, but it's like the 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 little dot is lower on the N and yeah. it starts up high on the so. Yeah. yeah. So it's yep. like very. I don't know why I found that one annoying. Whereas like one of my best friends is like the exact opposite, where he learned the katakana first and he like can read that perfectly, but he can never keep the hiragana like mm-hmm. consistent. And I'm like, no, hiragana is really easy. I don't know what you're talking about. It's kind of kind of with all those like weird like sharp lines that like annoys yeah. me. I, I, I kind of I think there was a time where I knew hiragana better, but yeah, I think just the usefulness of deciphering the you know the katakana on the screen of and and always having like a, a wrestler there whose name I knew so I could be like, oh yeah that oh yeah it's it's Carl Anderson or whatever you know <laughs> yeah you know? well I could usually get it up for the for the wrestler names because yeah once you like you you start sounding it out and then like you're like Zaku oh da Zach Saber Jr. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, stuff like exactly. that. Exactly. But yeah. uh and people who don't like study Japanese probably think I'm being offensive, but that's like how you should read a Japanese <laughs> an English name written in Japanese, like you should read the Japanese sounds. <laughs> that's why when they announce Zack Saber Jr., they they're not just doing that for fun. Like they're they're basically reading Zack Saber Jr.'s name in katakana, like Zaku. Yeah. But, well yeah. because they don't they don't um with the exception of the letter N. Uh, they don't end their words in in consonants, yeah. really, right? Yeah, it's all it's all vowel sounds at the end of it. Yeah, and would be the Syllables. only and would be the only one. Yeah, so yeah, anything yeah. else? And even that, I think, is pretty rare. I don't think they. I mean, it has its own. It's the only one that ha- like a, that's a constant by like as its own character. But I don't think they really end many words with it anyway. Well, like like triple crown is sankan, right? So so that uh, ends in an N, I guess. You're right. You're right. I don't know. And then like I'm showing off with my Japanese, <laughs> and like guy guy Kokujin and stuff like that. Yeah, now that I say it out loud, you're yeah. you're correct. But uh, but yeah, there's no other character that ends with like no. that's just a consonant. So anyway, nobody cares. <laughs> so let's let's keep going. Uh, the next because I've done the the Japanese language stuff before, and people I think people's eyes like ears glaze over. That's not really a thing, but. Uh, we were talking about that double move. That's what we got, like, on yeah. that. And, like, yeah. I like that after Masawa kicks out, Kazawa, I mean, Kawada has, like, really had enough at this point, and he just starts, like, stomping on his fucking face. And, like, he's so angry that he yeah. this man dared to kick out of that double-team move. And that's where Kobashi, I mean, you talked about it. This is, like, the second mm. time he does it. But he, like, throws himself on top of Masawa to try and yeah. protect him. And that leads to them whipping his ass and giving him the combo backdrop Nodawa. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so that's a, that, which is another really cool like combo move. Uh, and then Masawa like tries to fight back himself. Uh, he does succeed in taking out Tawei with the Roaring Elbow, but then walks right into the Enziguri from Kawada 
and he kicks out again, which the crowd the crowd can't believe it. So Kawada, you know, he gives Misawa a really sick backdrop, uh, and that only gets two. Uh, hits yet another Enzigiri, and then, uh, you know, another power bomb, and that finally gets the pin while Kobashi is like, you see him trying to crawl over while Tawai holds him back. One of the great all-time uh, failed saves in wrestling history. Uh, and there you go. Kawada has finally pinned Misawa. Uh, it, I mean, it sets up another Triple Crown Challenge for Kawada the following month at Budokan. Uh, he was right. not successful. He lost there. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, he doesn't beat... Does he beat Masawa before the 98 Tokyo Dome match in a singles match? I don't think he does. So, in, in the 97... Oh, Champion Carnival. Cha- Champion Carnival. Okay. The Champion Carnival, there's like a three-way tie between Misawa, Kawada, and Kobashi. And so the Budokan final, rather than being a singles match, is like a, like a round-robin. And there's a... So Masawa and Kobashi have a match, and it's a 30-minute draw. And Masawa has to wrestle Kawada immediately. Kawada comes out and fucking kills him in like six minutes. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> and right. That's his, that's his first singles win, I guess. So the ninety-eight one is like the ninety-eight is the quote-unquote first real one. It's, yeah, yeah, it's it's the first yeah the, in the Tokyo Dome. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Uh, but this is the first pinfall. I mean, you know, this is where I would give a star rating. I don't know if you're a star rating guy, but uh, it's it's obviously five stars. I don't know. It's not really a difficult call. Uh, I think it's still the best tag team match I've ever seen. I can't think of a better one. Yeah, I don't know. I'm like, uh, I guess you, you got to me- measure the endorphins in, in your brain. We need to do like a, an experiment where um, we have people watch certain wrestling matches and, and measure like the oxytocin or the endorphins or something, some sort of chemicals in people's brains to see like what they describe as five stars and how much, uh, you know, how, how many chemicals they're having uh, in their brain at that time. But yeah, I don't know. It just depends on like, you know, I don't know, from any, any given uh, viewing. I, th- I think the, the 12 6 tag match is awesome too. And it's, you know. It's, it's it's right up there with, with this one. All right. So let's transition over to my first pick. And I'm going to have to go short on each match because we went a long time on that yeah, one. Yeah, we did. Holy uh, shit. Toshiaki Kawada versus Shinya Hashimoto from All Japan, uh, February 22nd, 2004. Um, I just kind of thought of this one in my head when you had picked, sent me your two picks with the Kawada matches. And, you know, I just kind of thought, like, hey, it'd be fun to relive this one because I don't really remember it that well. But it's a really interesting match because you basically mm-hmm. have... First of all, I guess I, before I even introduce it, had you ever seen this before or no? It's really good that you picked this because I bet this is a match that I have on VHS that I never got around to watching. Ah, there you go. <laughs> and and, and then I, that I watched for the first time probably today. So, yeah. I, don't, I definitely don't remember watching it. Okay. And it's, it's a very interesting match because you're basically talking, like, two of the absolute biggest stars of the 90s, right? I mean, you have yeah, Kawada yeah. in All Japan, Hashimoto from New Japan, that had never met in a singles match. And here they both are, like, clearly on the downside of their careers. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. poor, poor Hashimoto would be dead in a year, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, this is, like, very close to the end for him. I mean, he's he wrestles through... Let me see. I wrote it down. So he wrestles through August 04. Um, so he wrestles about, you know, about, like, uh, six months after this. And, you know... After that, he takes time off because he's got the, as you can see, the giant taped up shoulder here. Um, he's take he's trying to heal that injury, and the, he he had stepped down of zero one, and the rumor was uh, he was going to try to make a return to New Japan, and you know that oh. would have been really interesting. Hashimoto back in New Japan, two thousand five, hmm. with all the turmoil that company was going through. But uh, yeah. but yeah, I mean, he unfortunately he passed away of a brain aneurysm during training, so he never you know he never got to make that comeback. 
But yeah, I mean, this is basically Hashimoto getting his chance to win back the Triple Crown after he never lost it. Uh, he won it from Great Muda on right. February 23rd, 2003. Uh, he made two successful defenses, and then he had to vacate the title later that summer due to a knee injury. Uh, and then Kawada won the vacant title from beating another 0-1 wrestler, uh, Shinjiro Otani, in a tournament final on September 6, 2003. So basically, it's like Hashimoto is now facing the current champion to try to get the belts back he never lost. Um, this is The other interesting thing about this is this is during the Kawada... I mean, Kawada never got a big triple crown reign until this, right? I mean, right. if you look at his triple crown reigns, they were all super short. I mean... He has four months, four months from late 94 into early 95. The infamous one-month reign where he beats Masawa at the Tokyo Dome, like we just talked about, and then, like, in, 90, yeah. in 98. And whether this was the plan or not, uh, they put the belt on Kobashi a month later. Rumor has it because the house show business tanked after Kawada really? beat. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah, so Kawada beats Masawa, and the house show business goes in the toilet. I mean, there's a lot wow. in The Observer at the time about this, but, like, it hmm. really gets – it really crashes, and they – you know, no one. I guess no one really knows if they had always planned to put the title on Kobashi the following month, or if that was a panic change because the business was so bad. But I think most people think it was the latter, so that's always interesting. Uh, and then after that, his next two reigns, uh, he beats Misawa in January '99, yeah. but he had to immediately vacate the title because he broke his arm during that match. And then, you know, the Noah split happens. Right. The Noah split happens, and you're thinking, okay, well, he, he's finally going to get his big right now. There's no one here. But he doesn't win the title until February 02, so almost two years later. And then he has to vacate the belt again after yet another injury in just a month without a successful defense. So this is his fifth reign, and at this point, he's had. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards, and yeah, you can open it, and look, it's going to be junk. You're, you, you know what I mean? Like You know what you're probably going to get in those. Maybe you find that fun, and sometimes I do. Sometimes I like just opening up cards and saying, oh, hey, look at some random cards or whatever, but if you're really in this game to, to find value and find particular cards, it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs, and it ends up being, you know, almost nothing, you know, nothing of value. Not with Arena Club. You can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading, so you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good, and Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, 
We've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. What's going on, guys? This is Rich from the Flagship Podcast here on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. If I could have a moment of your time, I'd like to tell you about one of our sponsors, Eufy Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock is a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell all three-in-one offering you triple security so you can have everything in one device rather than installing many pieces on your front door but it's not just for security the eufy video lock is also for convenience no more concerns about losing keys and you can assign passwords to your family members and see them coming back home via the integrated cameras some other great features we love about the eufy video lock is it is easy to install and set up with just a phillips screwdriver no drilling required Keyless entry, no more fumbling for keys when your hands are full. You never have to worry about kids losing keys or passing among renters. You also have 0.3 second, 0.3 second fingerprint recognition and one second unlocking. Again, 0.3 seconds, it's going to recognize your fingerprints and in one second it's going to unlock. And with the AI self-learning chip embedded, the more you use it, the more accurate it will be. Also, no battery anxiety. You have a rechargeable battery in there that could last around four months and you will get a low battery notification before it runs out. Uh, passcode unlocking a remote control with the 2K clear sight. See who's at your door and control from anywhere through the Eufy app. With enhanced night vision, you can have optimized view even in the evening. You can also secure your package delivery by view and two-way audio. And then best of all, no monthly fee. A bunch of other brands out there are going to charge you a monthly fee. You have your recordings locally and you never have to pay for storage. Customer service, Eufy's got you handled as well. They're on standby for you 24-7 so you can enjoy a worry-free experience with an 18-month warranty, all backed by their professional customer service team. Contact them anytime by telephone, email, or live chat. Personally, as a homeowner, I love my Eufy video lock. I have the ability to see what's going on when I'm not home, when packages have has arrived, and, and really the thing I love the most about it, the ease of being able to lock and unlock my doors without having to fumble with my keys and reach in my pocket or wait, no, crap, they're in my backpack, all that sort of stuff. All this is happening while my dogs are barking at me. You know what? Not anymore with the Eufy video lock. I touch it. 0.3 second fingerprint recognition, one second doors unlocked much much easier so if you want to jump on board with eufy video lock search eufy video lock that is e u f y video lock again that's eufy video lock e u f y video lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your door and i think like one successful defense i don't remember if it was one yeah, or two one, in that. so did you mention the 95 rain he he beats well he, in 94 in october 94 he beats steve williams uh-huh. and he has a title defense against kobashi on january 1995 an hour draw so it doesn't even pin him <laughs> and then and then drops it to hansen yeah. on, on march 4th 
I'm so proud of myself letting know all these dates. On March 4th, 1995, he drops it to Hanson, who then drops it to Masawa. Right. So, like, the 94... I did mention 94 and 95, and I couldn't remember if it was one defense or two defenses, but that's that's yeah. a great point. I totally forgot it's not even... A, he, he hasn't beaten anyone to retain this title right. at this point. He, right. It was the one-hour draw. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so then he wins it in 03. Not, doesn't even beat anybody for it because it was a, like we just said, the, the belt was vacated after Hashimoto got injured. Uh, I would imagine he was supposed to beat Hashimoto. That that probably was what was supposed to happen because he beats him here anyway. So it's like, mm-hmm. you know, they probably negotiated that with Hashimoto. Like you come in because he was still 0-1 at this point. So it's like you come in to All Japan. You, we'll give you the triple crown. But then you have to put Kawada over. Um yeah. But yeah, so he basically, but this was finally that big epic title reign. I mean, he, he holds it for 17 months. Uh, he sets the record for the most title defenses in one reign with 10, mm-hmm. which was the record that Kento Miyahara recently tied but was not able to break. Uh, Suwama beat him on that 11th defense attempt. But yeah, so that's after all this time and this, during this period where like all Japan is, you know, not doing too hot, that's Kawada's right. final, like his final reign is finally his epic reign. So. Right. I, I wrote in my notes here this, this, the, the the unheralded tragedy of, of Toshiaki Kawada is just he's he never really gets that that time to be the top star of the company. It's always Misawa overshadowing him, and it's all these short runs that are either either shortened by booking decisions or shortened by injuries. And even after Misawa's out of the damn company, he finally beats Mudo for the title, but then he gets injured a couple months later. And by the time he finally does have his like epic run as the champion it's you know, the business is like a fraction of what it had been in the 90s you know yeah i mean it's the weird like muto era of all japan that like i feel like some right. people some people really like it but the people that do are very like uh i feel like few and far between because you and, like, and this is oh sorry go ahead so, and, th- and this is the budokan right and i think I, I looked it up this is the last all japan show at the budokan oh wow i didn't, I didn't even notice that and uh, it's just a stark contrast to watch this i watched this uh consecutively after i watched the tag match that we just talked about and um it looks like so right it's this white ring that's just full of sponsors where we had been watching this pretty plain blue ring and in, in, in giant baba's pure basic fundamentalist all japan pro wrestling it's, it's interesting and like the video screen makes it look weirder too yeah yeah and like the camera angles are different it just looks it looks like a totally different building mm-hmm. um but yeah the you know it's just a weird era of all japan where like i i remember you know as a you know, a fan online at the time, you know, there weren't that many All Japan devotees, you know? I mean, it was like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Noah was super popular and Toriumon slash Dragon Gate was super popular and uh, New Japan, even though that was not, that's not considered a great period historically, they were still, they still had a lot of defenders online. I mean, like the Strong Style Spirit people and stuff. So mm-hmm. like, you know, they had a lot of fans online, even on the West, what of the Western Spear, of what little of it existed at the time. But All Japan, like that's one of the ones that like no one talked about. And like, you know, occasionally someone would be like, hey, All Japan, basically. But like, it felt like no one really talked or cared about All Japan as a Western Puro fan at the time. Yeah. I don't know if you had any different perspective like, on that, but yeah. Like, so this is towards the end. Obviously, I I, I never got around to watching this match because this is just like just be just after my I start I start to follow Japanese wrestling less. But um, it, it I, my frustration at the time was that there, there was just too many promotions and everything was getting too fragmented and all these this there's like four what I would call like major promotions in Japan and that you know, New Japan, All Japan, Zero One, Noah, and then in in all three. Ricky Choshu leaves New Japan and starts WJ. It just fragmented everything so much that nobody was able really to be that strong. And of course, at this time, you've got you know, Enoki is running wild and, and killing New Japan. 
Yeah. So it was like I, I really got super into Japanese wrestling at a time where it was really on the decline. And I, I kind of wish, and I guess the, like the Japanese culture just wasn't conducive to this. Like I wish that some of them had gotten together and merged and like you know put their resources together and put their talent rosters together to build up a stronger company. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because we were just were you you're in the voice wrestling Slack. Do you remember what the other? I don't know if you were around the other day. Where were you, Gerard? I believe Gerard Detrolio. He found like an old note from a wrestling observer when Kojima and um, you know Muto and Kendo Kashin jumped from New Japan to All Japan at the start of 2002 there's like a note in there about how the Japanese telecom giant SoftBank was going to basically try to take on New Japan by like merging All Japan and Noah and Zero One so like that apparently almost wow. happened That we almost had like the super group to take down New Japan but wow I mean, if you like having a company the size of uh, the name, probably doesn't mean anything to most people listening. But SoftBank is a gigantic yeah. company. I mean, you're talking about like in the billions of dollars in revenue per year. I believe the last time I looked it up. I mean, like, way bigger even than Cyber Agent, who's already way bigger than uh, Bushi Road. So yeah, I mean, I, I, Masayoshi San is, is the big CEO there. I, I, I hear SoftBank name dropped on, on some like tech business podcasts I listen to. Yeah, I mean they're, they if you've been you'll go through the name all over the place if you go to Japan. Yeah. I mean they are a gigantic company. So having a SoftBank backed wrestling conglomerate would have been would have been something, but apparently it didn't happen. They just yeah, which, like, it, it just seemed like zero one in all Japan would they already were doing it in promotional stuff like this match is an example of it. It seems like they were they were in a in a really good position to just like merge or have a really strong I don't know I guess I guess they did have a a partnership of some sort but it's just they were they they were separately they were spread so thin you know yeah and it just it, it's something that just doesn't happen as I've learned yeah. as a Japanese wrestling fan it's like once they split off they never mm-hmm. really come back I mean Russell One you could see mm-hmm. people were screaming for Russell One to rejoin all Japan all that time it never happened they just closed you know and then yeah. the wrestlers just kind of yeah. end up you know scattered all over yeah I think, i've sat down and I've, I've drawn it out like the, sto- the history of japanese wrestling is just a history of fragmentation like starting with ricky dozon to Inoki and baba and baba masawa you know it's and so on you know yeah it's a very they they just split i mean they split a lot and i mean joshi even split earlier i think right. than men's wrestling too yeah so, you're right yeah yeah because you have all these different splits that, that was based on like the age retirements and stuff and all right the right but yeah um but this match itself, you know, it's an interesting match. Um, it's not like a all-time classic or anything. It's really not like a match that I think... You know, I, I remember reading at the time that people um, were disappointed by it. And I get why, because, like, these are two all-time legends. But, like, the stuff in this match that's really good is really good. I mean, like, where they square off and, like, they, they trade these leg kicks in a pretty great sequence, ending with, like, this big sweep from Hashimoto that Kawada sells like death. I mean, that is really good stuff. And, you know, just there's some amazing striking in this match and some really good selling from Kawada especially. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, there's a... I don't know. What, what did you think of this one? Did you like it? it, it it's it's good. I, I probably would have been slightly disappointed at the time. Just I, I probably would have been really hoping that Kawada and, and Hashimoto could have this classic match. Um, it, it's sort of at the end i'm sort of left to wonder you know what would what would have a match between these two have been like um when they were closer to their physical prime and when the business was closer to its prime where the, the crowd would have been hotter it's it, the buddha this is the budokan and it's super darkened so the, the, i don't know what the attendance was i, I on cage matches it listed as sixteen thousand. i highly doubt it was sixteen thousand. but um the crowd isn't as hot but it's 
it's good. It's a good match, but it's not like the classic that you might hope it would be on paper when you see these two names who are, you know, a member of the Three Musketeers against a member of, of the Pillars here. Yeah. I mean, I think I might, based on what you just said, I think I might like it more than you do, but I I thought, like, the striking was really, really high level, um, you know, and Kawada's selling was really great. Some other stuff wasn't so great. Like, there was, like, a backdrop by Hashimoto at one point that looked, or by Kawada on Hashimoto that looked a little botched. Uh, and, like, I, I never liked the stretch plum. I don't know what you think about it, but, like, that to me was always one of the weaker aspects of Kawada, <laughs> where, like, I just never thought that submission looked great. And, you know, he's he's a guy that, in a, that wrestled in a promotion that never seemed to take submission super seriously anyway. So that I'm sure that also hurt it, hurt its perception. Right. But, like, um, so, like, the long stretch plum here doesn't really work great for me. Right. And the, and the stretch plum is the finish here. I, like, I have no big problem with the sp- stretch plum itself if, if it's protected as a big finish. I, I Like, I, I think there are a couple matches I've seen where Kawada wins with the stretch plum, but it's very rare. Yeah. And as you said, in, in all Japan in general throughout in, in the decade of the 90s, there's very few at least high-profile submission finishes. But, like, I'm, I'm fine with almost any hold if it's if it's over and protected, you know, Um it's it's a little bit of a sudden finish. It's not like there's a ton of near falls and a big chase to the to the finish here. There's almost like a little bit of tragedy in that. These are just two two kind of broken down horses who used to be you know who used to be stronger stallions in the past, and they're just like nailing each other with super stiff kicks. Yeah, I mean the kicks are the best part of match by a mile, um, yeah. and that really elevates it to me. Where even you know some of the other stuff can be a little boring. I mean, there's this great spot where Hashimoto like you know when he gets out of the stretch plum. Um, you know, after the strike exchange, you know, he he basically, like, he chops the leg to take back over, which is, like, a, a good little callback to, like, this leg work that came much earlier in the match that we had kind of forgotten about. And then he totally, like, wrecks him with this awesome running middle kick where it's, like, that was, like, the best, like, uh, like the biggest flash of the old Hashimoto. Like, that middle kick looks so good. Um, and then he, he gets a brain buster, but, like, he's too busy like selling his legitimately injured shoulder uh, from the stretch plum before to follow up or go for the pin. So again, right. very, very good psychology. And then Kawada, he gets back up, and then Hashimoto like whips his ass with yet more kicks. And the crowd, like you said, which wasn't super into it early for the, the level you might expect for two legends, they're like really into this match now. Like they're going really nuts. Uh, and he goes for another brain buster, but Kawada blocks it, and they do like this like this cool little double like exhaustion spot but where they're both standing up which you don't see very often but i think it works here like like you said because they're both like these old war horses kind of and it feels like you know it just feels natural for the drama um mm-hmm. but yeah then like he he tries it again but kawada fights out like the knees and kicks and forms another enzigiri and this is where the striking is like just really really awesome um and like you said but basically um you know they they fight out with more kicks uh, Hashimoto goes down from an insecurity, almost like a timber kind of moment, which I actually liked. And then Kawada locks in the stretch plum again, and Hashimoto's corner ta- uh, throws in the towel. Which I, nice. I, I like a good towel throw and finish. It's like, that's a good, I, I, we don't see much of that, but it's a, it almost feels like something, somebody in the corner took it away from you, kind of. But, uh, you know, it's a, it's a cool, it's a cool finish. Yeah. Do you think that's like part of the politics of like, well, we'll, we'll let you beat Hashimoto, but we're going to do this finish? Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't... Again, I, I star rating, I would go four stars. I don't think it was like... Again, not an all-time classic, but I enjoyed the striking the striking enough and the Kawada selling enough and just like these two legends being in there and like, you know, 
having these exchanges enough to go four stars flat on it. Uh, you know, again, not an all-time classic, but I, I'm glad they had this match, and especially with how little time that was left in Hashimoto's career, uh, yeah. it was it was impro- it's good that they had this match together. But I don't know, yeah. I don't know if you're a star rating guy, if you want to give it a rating. No, I, I was thinking earlier today, like, well, you know, I might, I might get asked about about star ratings. <laughs> um, I like I've I've done some reviews for like for Voice of the Wrestling where I've, where I've given stars, but. Like, I think at the time I was like, you know, I, I think I have to like privately star things and like calibrate my uh, my star measurement system. And it's been so long since I've uh, practiced the art of star rating of star giving that uh, I'm I'm not cal- well calibrated. But you know, it's it's a it's a good match. I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, argue with you about four stars. Um, and then like as far as like I, I said, a meeting between these two absolute legends. I mean, this is it for a singles match. They had two sing- they had two tag team matches in 2003 which I'd be interested to go back and see if they're any better. But it's around the same era, so you wouldn't think either guy would be in much better shape. But yeah, one was in All Japan and one was in Zero One. And then a few weeks after this, they teamed up in a pretty famous match against uh, Kevin Randleman and Mark Coleman, the MMA fighters, in Hustle. So, which uh, I remember people like got a really kick out of because Kevin Randleman was like a surprisingly good pro wrestler but for someone who had very little experience. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, so your second pick was Toshiaki Kawada versus Kensuke Sasaki from New Japan, uh, October 9th, 2000. So we're going backwards four years here, but we're sticking with Kawada this time for his big showdown with Kensuke Sasaki. Um, mm-hmm. So this was the shadow of the Noah split, basically in the right. shadow of the Noah split, where all Japan, uh, you know, they, they lose the entire native roster except for two guys, uh, Kawada and Fuji. And, you know, I'm sure most people know that story. But then Fuji shows up uh, at a New Japan show, I believe at the G1 final. It's definitely Sumo Hall. Uh, yeah, that sounds right. And he shows up and says, I mean, the exact translation, I think, is something like he wants to tear down the walls between the two companies. Mm. And that basically meant we're going to do New Japan, All Japan. It wasn't quite a feud or an invasion because... You know, quite frankly, All Japan did not have enough wrestlers to do either of those things. But it was more like, you know, All Japan guys will participate here, and New Japan guys will participate in All Japan. Uh, and Keiji Muto ends up forming like an interpromotional stable. Uh, it's a really interesting period, a period I like a lot, actually. Uh, What's the name of the stable? Like Bat? Yeah, it's uh, like Badass Translation Team. B A T T. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's like him, Taiokea, Hiroshi yeah. Hase. And then somebody else, I think. Um, but yeah, that that few produced a lot of awesome stuff from like the fall of 2000 until January 4th, 2002. Because right after the 1402 Dome Show, that's where uh, Muto and Taioke, uh, Muto and Kojima and yeah. Kendo Kashin jumped to New Japan, and that that ends the <laughs> the cooperation. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so like this, so it's like a, a about a year and like four months basically, and there's a lot of really cool stuff in this period. Uh, obviously, this was like a really big match, you know. Basically, Sasaki, the ace at the time, or the at least the IWGP Heavyweight Champion. Uh, yeah. You know, he's facing Kawada for some reason, not for the title. Uh, even though after right, Sasaki, title. Sasaki loses his match and vacates the title, then they have a tournament final on January 4th, 2001, back at the Tokyo Dome, where Sasaki beats Kawada mm-hmm. to win the title. So it's like, why did they just have Kawada win the title and lose it to Sasaki? I've never seen a good explanation for that. I have no idea what the what the answer is. I guess they, I guess I guess you you, you kind of it, it's in everybody's best interest for. All Japan to get a big win at the beginning of this interpromotional feud because All Japan is clearly the weaker promotion between the two. 
So, I don't know. And I guess... They probably just, uh, they, they just didn't want him to win the title, I guess. I guess that's the Yeah, I, I guess maybe, uh, who knows, it will come back and, and lose it back to us. But, um, but And then Kensuke gets his win back anyway because he's going to beat him on January 4th. Yeah. I was, I was really hoping for an Agata and Kawada match, too, especially with the... Um, have you seen the, the, the December 14th, 2000 tag match? Yeah. Oh my god, I love that! Man. And like they they have like a big stare down at the end, and you think it's gonna yeah. happen. you think it's yeah. gonna you think it's gonna happen, and then it never yeah. happens. <laughs> there's no. so many examples of that in Japanese wrestling around this time, though, <laughs> because like there's that famous first zero one tag where like it feels like they're building to Masao versus Hashimoto, and then they have yeah. a, they have another tag in Noah, and you're like, okay, we're we're doing this, let's go, and it never right. happens. They never yeah. they never do the singles match. So yeah. yeah. Masao uh, never really gets in the ring in the singles, except for with uh, Chono, and they do like a 30-minute draw. Remember that in the Tokyo Dome? Yeah. Oh. There's also the Kobashi-Chono 60-minute draw, too. And, like, yeah, there's, that was pretty much it. No, K- like... Kobashi, Kobashi beats Chono. Oh, you're right. What am I thinking of 60 Chono and Nagata had a 60-minute draw you're right. in October 2002. You're right, yeah. So Kobashi yeah. does beat Chono. I wonder what the fuck New Japan got back for that. Because, <laughs> like, like, Akiyama beats... Uh, Akiyama beats Nagata in the main event of the Dome 2. It's like, do you know what really got the better of them in that feud? Yeah. Well, like, supposedly the deal with Akiyama and Nagata is, like, if, if Nagata beats Crow Cop, Nagata can go over. But if he loses, uh, Akiyama's going over. And, of course, he gets crushed. Yeah. That makes sense, actually. I mean, I know that the people who were booked in charge of Noah, I think it's a guy by the name of Ryu, Ryu Nakata, I think was his name. I could have that name wrong, but that's off the top of my head. And he was like the the business side of Noah. And I, I remember every, like from what I've read of people's accounts of the time, he was like really, really hardcore about like we cannot do jobs when intro promotional. We have to go over because we have to establish this promotion. And he was like because I guess they had these stars that everybody wanted, you know, Misawa and Kobashi and even Akiyama, mm-hmm. that, like, they were able to take a really hard-line position with these companies and, like, just really never do jobs in these interpromotional feuds. Yeah, I mean, like... That's oh, right, I'm struggling to, to think of a time where the, any of those three, Akiyama, Kobashi, or Misawa, um, ever ever lost a fall outside of Noah. Yeah, it's really... Or to somebody outside of Noah at all. It it probably never happened. I mean, they probably yeah. they. I can't think of any at the top. We, we, I think we, maybe Akiyama might have got pinned at some point in like a tag, but I don't. Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, but it's it's pretty rare. So mm-hmm. uh, unless we're unless both of us were getting something obvious and, and people are screaming, I, I doubt it. And in, in, in tags, they would always like put Masao with Ogawa or something. You know, yeah. you have the obvious fall guy or, or Muto with with Kea. I think you know that match happens in a, in a Tokyo Domino Four. I think. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. uh, it's very anyway. interesting. But yeah, so back to this match. Um, you know, this. I guess I never even asked you why'd you pick this one. Just it's a, one of your favorites. Um, I, I love this match. I think it's it's really influential as far as um, the trade battle. And I'm sure there's there's probably other matches that people people could point to to uh, to say this is. I mean, I think like Hashimoto and Tenru from '98 is is a great match that has some similarities as far as just the endless strike battles. Um, just uh, it's it's just a match that. You know, I, I got on a really fast turnaround on VHS in, in, in the year 2000 when I was 15 years old. And, like, just, it's just, it was a special experience of just, you know, you know waiting for the, the, the mail truck to come and to see if it was going to have your tape in, in there. And you, it was, you know, it, it's really great today that we have endless access to all these streaming services and, and YouTube and Daily Motion that has everything out there that you could ever want. <clears throat> But it was just such a, a special experience where you had like you could just got this taste, you just got this really limited window into this other world 
uh, that that I enjoyed so much better than what I was seeing on TV at the time. Um, and I just just uh, I probably was spoiled, and I probably knew what the finish was. But uh, I, I just you know marked out watching this match and just watching them lay into each other with all these chops, and, and then later on they they lay into each other with the lariats. Um, but yeah, it was I just you know I I loved the match, and I think it's really influential as far as you know you might say it's overdone today or with the uh, the trade battles especially if you watch a lot of us indie wrestling <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot of trade battles and i think this is a match that sort of it influences the, the next chapter you might say of this is uh uh sasaki and kobashi in the tokyo dome where they just endlessly chop each other yeah um it's... and i think there's a lot of uh, a lot of like ishii and, and shibata matches where they just endlessly go at each other yeah yeah I think you cut out there for a second, um, but yeah, I mean, th- this is a, like you said, a very influential match with the the trade battles and also with like, you know, the lariat versus the enzigiri. You know, like mm. the way like they'll, yeah, he'll lariat down the enzigiri and he'll enzigiri down the lariat, which I think is you know just a very very famous sequence. Uh, Sasaki to me also like when I picture Kensuke Sasaki, I can picture him with that fucking leather jacket. With that IWGP title, the, the crown belt, you could call it, like standing back there at the Tokyo Dome. I mean, that is like such, yeah. an, such an iconic image of Sasaki. And that fucking mullet before he cut it off. <laughs> he looks so cool. I mean, like as yeah. cool as any wrestler's ever looked, I think. Yeah, I, I, I took a note, like just that close up of, um, I think somebody was, was telling you in the Discord, like you have to watch this this version of it with the entrances. Like just that 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 smoky close up of, of uh, Kensuke Sasaki standing back there and his music's playing. And he's just waiting to go out, and he's kind of got his lips pursed, and he's ready to go out there and kick some ass and have a fight and defend New Japan. Yeah. And um, and the and the other cool thing in the entrance here is that I think and you you may have a better idea of this than I do, but like there's there's New Japan fans and there's All Japan fans, and there is sort of a sentiment I think for this is a New Japan show, this is a New Japan Tokyo Dome show, and you you've got Kawada marching down there to to wrestle in the main event, and like people throw trash at him on the ramp. <laughs> As, he, as he's walking out because an all japan wrestler doesn't belong in the new japan ring yeah i mean that and that you know that aspect of interpromotional uh and like you know fans being of this promotion and not liking other fan the other promotions wrestlers i mean that has always been one of my favorite things about japanese wrestling that does not really exist in america i mean yeah. if you you know wwe doesn't do interpromotional really unless they bought the company and want to book it into the ground and you know, in American indies, they all have the same. I mean, there, there aren't enough indies with rosters. You know, <laughs> like it's like yeah. you, the, the only big example I can think of is like you know, Ring of Honor versus CCW is like a right. good, really good example, which which has that kind of feeling of like you know us against yeah. them and their fans versus our fans. But that happens in Japan like all the time. I mean, like a right. lot. That it, it probably has happened less in recent years, which is. You know, a little annoying, honestly, and I I think they're going to get back to it. And that's I was tweeting about this earlier today. Earlier today, I think you're going to see more interpromotional stuff when uh, Japanese wrestling gets going again because it's it's like very ingrained in Japanese wrestling to go back to that during like a time of crisis or a time of uh, things going down, basically. Which I think we're going to be in both. So I think they're you're going to see more of that probably. But uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, just that like that rooting for, you know, your promotions wrestlers and you don't want to see the other promotions wrestlers and you want your wrestlers to kick their ass. I mean, it's like the closest you get to, like, sports teams, basically. So Yeah, would you, would you say it's sort of the, the same thing? It's the, the Japanese culture in the, in the way that in, in Japanese promotions, you don't have people jumping 
between promotions, right? Like you do here in the US. Yeah. Because there's so much loyalty. And I'm, I'm guessing it's a similar thing where fans just become loyal to this this company. Right. And everything I've always heard is that there's less, there's a lot more like specific promotion loyalty in Japan among the fans than there, there is here even. And like, you know, there is like such a thing as like a general Japanese smark. But, like, there's way less of them, basically, than there are here. Like, most people have a home promotion where they go to all the, that company's shows. And maybe they'll check out some other company. Uh, but it's often, like, the most common time when they check out some other companies when, you know, their company's wrestlers are wrestling there. That's why, like, even when you, like, mm-hmm. when you see Daisuke Sekimoto and Yuji Kobayashi in All Japan, they have, like, you know, this clear contingent of big Japan fans who just came out to support them at Corrigan. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, like, the kind of thing that, that happens a lot there. Uh, but yeah, so this match owns. I mean, it's it's, it's so awesome. Um, you know, I wrote down a bunch of spots here again, but like, there's a there's a long like slap exchange in the middle that is just yeah. so good. Before Kawada just finally like punches him in the head and then puts him down with the enzigiri. And again, this is a match that yeah. uh, you know features so much badass striking, and it's probably one of my favorite things about you know in wrestling. Um, and then the punch, it's it's got it's got the classic Kawada cell where like rather than like bumping or like flopping around, he just like slowly squats. Yeah, and it's like uh, you know it is it is really something. Uh, the the stretch plum is as over as I've ever heard it honestly here, and I think it's because New Japan crowds are trained to have mm-hmm. a submission and a match. I mean the stretch plum is like the, the crowd gets really into it here. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, and then there's like a great spot where Sasaki, you know, he powers out of the power bomb with a back body drop, and then just absolutely destroys Kawada with a lariat. And you know, this this one of the one of the awesome, most awesome lariats I've ever seen. Um, and then he just like keeps throwing these badass lariats, and you know, uh, goes for the Scorpion Deathlock, which is a you know a callback to his mentor Ricky Choshu, but Kawada makes the ropes. Um, and then they end up having like a lariat exchange in the middle that ends up with Sasaki destroying him again with another enormous one. But then Kawada just like pops up and hits the big boot. And it's like the great example of the Puro delayed sell. You know, not no sell, because people yeah. always confuse that, but delayed sell. He does sell it. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of a double down. And it's, it's followed up by, by great camera work. We were talking about the great camera work before, but there's a great. Um, it's very similar, I think, to the kind of New Japan camera work you see today, where there's this great like foreground and background contrast. Mm. They have this double down, and um, I think it's it's uh, uh, Kensuke hits the first thing, and then Kawada pops up and hits the kick, right? And so so. Um, but anyway, I don't I don't know what, what the order is, but but there's this great uh, foreground and background contrast where. You know, Kawada is just like tr- just sweat stripping down off of his face, and he's like pounding the canvas trying to get up. And in the background, you know, Kensuke is you know coming alive, and he's having this facial expression. He's gritting his teeth at him, and it's it's, it's a great moment. Yeah, I mean, it is like, like you said, the camera work here is like there's like a certain kind of New Japan like old school Tokyo Dome production that mm-hmm. I I kind of miss honestly, even even during some of the years that I think people don't like, like the Nokinism years and stuff, like the production was always at like a really high level. And, you know, I, I, I'm not saying it's not good now, but I kind of feel like we have gone a little backwards. Um, but yeah, then we see like towards the end of it, like there's uh Kawada hits like yet another insecure to the face. Then he hits like three more to the back of the head. And you're just like, how is Sasaki still even standing? But then he does, like, the famous lariat to block the Enzigiri, which is, again, such a cool spot. The way he just, like, roars when he does it. 
yeah. it's like one of those really iconic moments to me. Um, but then he runs in for yet another lariat and Kawada counters with another Enzigiri and then crawls over the pin. And the crowd is so, so stunned that this is the yeah. pin because it takes him a while to crawl over. But the idea is like this kick is it. Like that's it. He knocked him out. And that was yeah. like he couldn't kick out at that point, no matter how long it took to crawl. I, I remember watching when I watched this for the first time. I remember thinking like, "Whoa!" Because like I think I knew what the, who went over. I may have even known what the finishing move was. But like it, this isn't a match with a bunch of near falls or like I mean, Kawada never goes for the power bomb, which is what I would say he wins the is the move that he used to win uh, matches with most often. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's a little bit of a sudden finish, but it's sort of like a. It, it it it's not it's not a finish that feels like too abrupt or like it didn't make sense. It's like they unloaded on each other with all these crazy strikes, and then it sort of it has this peak moment where he hits him with the kick and he go, and he goes down and he just but he just sort of like crawls over and puts his arms over him and, and gets the pin. Yeah. But um, but I I do love that moment where as you said like he hits uh, Kensuke hits the lariat on the Inzaguri attempt, and uh, I, I think as a result of hitting all these kicks and as a result of taking that lariat. You know, to the foot. Uh, you know, the post match. You know, they they have to take the kick pad off, and uh, I don't I don't know if it's on this clip that I watched. I watched the Daily Motion clip, but I, I remember seeing like, you know, that his uh Fuchi and and whoever the other uh, All Japan guys are sort of like helping Kawada to the back, and and the the boot is off. It's just like Kawada's socked foot, and he's limping to the back because yeah. you know these these kicks were so intense. And, the, and he hit him with the lariat. My God, he probably broke his ankle. You know, there's like just a, a really cool sell. Uh, so it is on the New Japan World version. I don't think it is on the Daily Motion one. But mm. you could do what I do, people. You could listen, watch the Daily Motion one <clears throat> just for the entrances and then switch to the New Japan World because uh, the New Japan World just the video quality is better. And, and and you get like the entire segment of Fuji like coming out for some reason. They put that like uh, the entire seven minute segment for the match. I thought that was interesting. But right. but yeah, this match owns. Uh, you know, I don't quite think it's the first, the full five, but it's really really close for me. I would go like four and three quarters. It's really like an absolutely amazing match. Uh, you know, one of those really classic matches, and I think way better than the the January fourth one. Uh, I don't. Oh yeah, way way better. Yeah, the January fourth one was kind of a, a letdown, if I remember correctly. But yeah, I mean, I love strikes. I love lariats and. It's right up my alley. Uh, but both guys are so badass here, and it just totally rolls. So, yeah. good pick. Fuji's just, Fuji's just overwhelmed with joy when Kawada uh, gets the pin. They, they, they put the camera on Fuji. And, like, memorably, Liger is over there in Sasaki's corner. But, like, you know, just Fuji is just like, oh, he's, he can't believe it. Oh, he's so relieved that Kawada has won. Yeah. I mean, it, it was one of those matches where, like, somebody... Somebody had to win and somebody had to lose. But I don't know if Kensuke Sasaki ever recovers from this, honestly. Uh, especially in New Japan, you know. But, uh, you know, he would have to, like, basically leave the company and, you know, totally reinvent himself before he really became a gigantic star again. So, you Well, know? he leaves in, at the beginning of 03 with Choshu to go to WJ, and that doesn't last long. And then he has a... a they cuts the mullet off, and he has a really good run outside. Yeah. Right? So like basically, yeah, the World Japan thing is a complete disaster. Uh, you know, I think I think he's gone by the end of the year. But yeah, he he cuts the mullet off. He goes back to New Japan as a freelancer who, you know, everybody hates and has like an incredibly bloody match with Yuji Nagata at a January fourth dome show. I think it's oh four. It might be oh five, but I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure it's oh four. Uh, and then he like 
he goes to Noah and has a really big run there. He has a big run in all Japan and wins the Triple Crown. He just kind of wrestles all over. He, he becomes a Florida brother, memorably, which I remember Akira Hokoto uh, <laughs> like gave all the credit to that for his revival. She basically said it was because he became a Florida brother. Uh, but yeah, that's his wife, by the way. People, people listening don't know. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, so that's that match. Great pick, Brandon. Uh, Thanks. My second pick, Kazuchika Okada versus Tetsuya Naito, New Japan, March 4th, 2012. Uh, so this is Okada's first defense right after the Rainmaker Shock, which lets me plug the Patreon again, patreon.com slash wrestlingomikase, because we just covered that match in the Okada-Tana uh, one-match series. So that's, uh, you know, Okada wins the title there, and you can hear all about that on the Patreon. And then at the end of that match, Naito comes out and challenges Okada, which means, you know, this is Okada's first defense. Uh, it's not the first Okada Naito match because they had, they had that match in, um, if I believe August twenty sixth, two thousand seven, on the farewell to CTU show because I think it's it's you know got that black ring map with the CTU logo where they're both young lions, and it's not even just Okada's young lion. It's Okada like as an incoming trainee, like this is right after uh, New Japan essentially buys his contract from Ultimo Dragon. Um, you know, which gives Ultimo Dragon the the money to keep his school in Mexico going for like a few more years, and you know, so this is right after he's jumping to New Japan, or he's essentially been bought by New Japan, and before they decide to put him in through their own training. So he does his match with Naito. He loses via Boston Crab, and you know, Naito at the time was already a, a young lion, and then he vanishes for. Um, I believe like six months or more. I think until like March or April or wait, and then he redebuts as, as like a real New Japan Young Lion, um, and he stays that way for like two years before he leaves uh, in a match against Tanahashi that's also covered on the Patreon, uh, January thirty first, twenty ten, and that's his last match before he goes uh, to TNA for that very memorable Okato run uh, <laughs> that made New Japan never want to do business with TNA again in any incarnation, uh, but then comes back. Uh, the famous bad debut of the Tokyo Dome that, you know, just looks so funny now in hindsight. And then a month later, 2012, uh, February 2012, beats Tanahashi with the title. Um, so this is an interesting match. First of all, it's, to date, the final IWGP heavyweight title match held at Corican Hall. Uh, they had, like, basically it had become a brief tradition of always having a IWGP title defense at Corican during the spring. And business really wasn't great during this period, which is, I'm sure, a major reason why they did this. But, yeah, they have, like, uh, it's where Nakanishi beat Tanahashi for the title in May 09. Uh, Nakamura retained against Goto in 2010. And Tanahashi retained against Nagata in 2011. So this is the last one. The following year, in 2013, they debut Invasion Attack which, as we discussed earlier, became, becomes Sakura Genesis as, like, a spring big show in Tokyo at Sumo Hall. So that title defense essentially replaces this one, is the easiest way to think about it. But, yeah, so it's, I mean, I imagine it must be... I'm, people on the the Discord channel for Wrestling Omakase, which, by the way, you can always join the Discords, uh, and it's in the description. The people in the Discord channel were saying it was just so weird to see an IWGP heavyweight title match in Corican, and that's part one of the things I think is very interesting about this match, where if you came on in the last, you know, seven years, you've never seen a title match at Corican. so... Uh, right, and I think that that applies to me. Like, so this is totally a blind spot. So I'm glad you picked up this match to from like a the era just before I started to get back into New Japan. Yeah, 
So they, they were going to Sumo Hall sometimes at this point still, right? Yeah, King of Pro Wrestling was always at Sumo okay. Hall in October. So, okay. and then, yeah, and then it, it was... It, w- it was, like, remarkable to me that this is happening in Corku and all here. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so, like, basically, you know, they, they, they the schedule was starting to become what you would think of now. Like, New Beginning was in Osaka uh, Prefectural Gym. Dominion was still also in Osaka Prefectural Gym at this point. Uh, it would not go to Osaka Joe Hall until 2015. But, yeah, I mean, like, this was the last big, like, uh, the last big switch, I think, to, to move the spring big show over to Sumo Hall uh, starting the following year. Uh, but yeah, so so Naito and Okada. Naito gets like a big chant coming out, and I guess uh, the people who insist he was never over as a babyface before Lij should uh, watch this match, I guess, because he was. I don't know what to tell them. Uh, I mean, you could you could say, you could attest to it. He was very over this match. Uh, yeah, it, it was really interesting to see the contrast of like I, I was watching uh, New Japan a little bit before he did the the Lij turn, but just to to see it again to see the old babyface Naito was was uh, a little bit jarring but yeah he was he was over and he was just like being like a regular you know japanese wrestler baby face and uh it's a very different character now starting with uh, the g1 in 2015 right when he started to, to like saunter out and, with his hat on yeah he came he came right back from uh i don't know if, i think it might have been dominion 2015 it was like right around there so like dominion mm. or g1 where he comes back from cmll and suddenly is acting like an asshole in these uh in these tag matches with the new japan guys but yeah um but yeah, I mean, he he basically would hit like a down, downward slope as a baby face, and like after coming back from the I believe a knee injury in 2013, uh, and you know we can, and then like you know the Ishii feud in 2014 didn't do him any favors either, uh, you know would like they not they had awesome matches, but I, I I was just talking about this in the Slack again the other day, like he they match up Naito with Ishii in 2014 after he loses that dome match, right? Where he's already starting to get booed by a lot of uh, crowds as a babyface. And it's like, that was the exact wrong guy to match up a guy that you want to push as a babyface that is getting slightly rejected because, like, Ishii is this, like, tough, badass dude who, like, the entire crowd loves. I mean, this is, like, if anything, the peak of Ishii mania at this point. And... You know, they put Naito in there, and it's like, well, all it did was accentuate all the stuff they don't like about him. Like, oh, he's, you know, too soft, or he's, like, the pretty boy, or whatever. So it just didn't work at all. And, like, I think that was, like, the the real death knell for his baby face push. And then, you know, he just kind of is in a holding pattern until 2015, when the LIJ thing happens. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, like, he was still really over here at this point, And, you know, the crowd was still really behind him. Okada, on the other hand, like, his reaction coming out is very subdued. And you have to remember, basically, his win over Tanahashi uh, in February was in Osaka. And that was the last show before this one. Uh, there mm. was, like, no shows in between this, in between that show and this show. So the last time the Tokyo fans have seen him in front of them, I mean, that was the disastrous, uh, you know, Wrestle Kingdom return with Yoshi, where he beats Yoshihashi in, like, eight minutes with that, like, weird falling neckbreaker version of the, of the Rainmaker. Uh, so yeah, like the, the Tokyo fans are, are still like I think in kind of like uh, you know show us what you got mode with him. Like they're not really behind him yet. It does, I think, as the match goes along, they start to get they start to warm up to him, and you start to hear more and more Okada chants. But I do think that's just a little interesting, uh, you know, because later on Okada will definitely get have a huge fan base in Tokyo, but I just don't think he has it yet at this point. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but yeah, this this match rules, and like, uh, you know, there's like so it's another leg match, and Okada yes. Okada for there's, like, there's knee work in all five of the matches that we picked here. <laughs> that's kind of crazy, right? Uh, but yeah, I mean, Okada does a really great job selling the leg in this match, and you know, you think for a guy who had very little under his belt. Uh, he does a better job selling a leg in this match than he does in a lot of matches to follow, I th- I think, anyway. Where I think sometimes the selling can be one of the weaker parts of his game, but, like, he's really good at selling the leg here. I mean, he is, like, just really, really good at it. Um, uh, uh, do you have any thoughts on, I guess, okay? I, I would note, too, just after watching, this was the fourth match I watched out of the five. And after watching all these matches that are so heavy on strikes and suplexes and, and head drops and what have you, this match started with chain wrestling. Yeah. <laughs> they just kind of they started out pretty pretty uh you know yeah. on the mat and stuff i i, I like the mat stuff they did earlier i've always i've always yeah, been a big yeah. fan of that um mm-hmm. but yeah okada like he, he gets the tombstone like super early too which is surprising but he's like too mm-hmm. busy studying his leg to follow up and then naito like rolls to the floor um and then like later on naito does like a a proto combination cabron almost where he like he sweeps okada's leg from the apron the way he sort of like the way he would now to set, to start that, yeah. but Okada doesn't go down. He like kind of hops on one leg, uh, which is you know kind of funny looking, but it, it kind of works. And then Naito does this awesome like missile basement drop kick, which he also used uh, in a match we watched recently on this show uh, with Nakamura in the the 2011 G one finals. But yeah, that's such an awesome move. He does, he doesn't do it anymore, but it's such a cool move. Yeah, this the sweep was almost Hashimoto like. Um... Would you say I'm trying to think of like uh, Naito matches that I've seen recently? Do you think he's looking he's faster? He's more athletic here. Oh yeah, now? for sure. I mean, he doesn't have that. He's not. I mean, I'm I mean, one of the eight years ago. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm one of, not a person that thinks he's fucking broken down now, and he's still he's in my match of the year for this year for sure. But uh, you know, I he, he's definitely it doesn't have quite the same. I don't know if it's speed, but like explosiveness, maybe like with the yeah. leaping and stuff. But like he can still run pretty fast when he gets going, but like maybe it's more like a consistent speed or like a you know consistent explosiveness here. Uh, but you know, like you said, it's eight years and a lot of miles, so you know, yeah. not really that surprising. But I don't want people to think I'm supporting the Dave Meltzer uh, Naito is like one bump from death narrative because I don't I don't think that's true, but. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, then another point, he like drapes Okada's leg over the railing, like slaps him in the face, which is such a great, I love that spot. Cause he just like, he does not have to do that. Okada's already not moving. It almost feels like an extra fuck you basically. Uh, and then he gets back on the apron and, you know, does this awesome drop kick to the leg on the fucking, on the, uh, on the railing from the apron. It just looks great. And that gets an enormous yeah. Naito chance. So he, he, Naito himself takes a hell of a bump on the floor in, in, delivering that move too yeah well that that has not changed in eight years <laughs> he's still he'll still take find whatever way to take the craziest bump he can um so yeah later on you know okada comes back with like another tombstone this one on the floor and that tombstone looks vicious i mean he like nearly drives his head into the black mat it looks pretty bad um you know pretty badass but like also pretty dangerous and then okada you know hits a big det back in the ring and then he goes to the deep in debt what do you think of the deep in debt i always hated that move it just looks very silly to me i, I imagine that's the move that i've written down here is dragon gate subs <laughs> it's, it looks very out of place in new japan 
Does he not do that anymore? No, not for a long time. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that I'm, I was talking about this on the Patreon. I don't know exactly when he switches from the Deep in Debt to the Red Ink, which is like sort of like that cross-legged STF thing. And that yeah, yeah. that move has its own problems too, but it looks it still looks a lot uh, like more in line with, uh, you know, with a typical New Japan submission move. The Deep in Debt looks very silly. So he hasn't busted that one out in a long time, I don't think, thankfully. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess it makes sense you would have a Toriumon slash Dragon Gate submission since he came from that, you know, training. But, he, you know, not, it doesn't really work here. Um, but yeah, so Naito eventually escapes it and he gets his own, uh, like, a reverse figure four that Okada escapes. And then uh, Okada, like, basically he he's, like, whips Naito in. Naito hits maybe his best flying form ever. I mean, it yeah. is such... He gets such incredible height on this thing. Like yeah. just... he, he does like a, an eight, a uh, Shawn Michaels like hits the hit the uh, the forearm to like simmer into is he about to do a comeback kind of thing. Yeah, and then he hits like this awesome enziguri, uh, and then a German suplex over in near fall. The crowd is like, you know, sounds like they're having a stroke. And then Naito he sets him up on the top rope and hits the top rope Rana, and then like a really great dragon suplex where he it's not like a, a traditional dragon suplex hold. He basically rolls through the hold part and like kind of like stacks him up for the pin it looks really cool so it's a it's a really cool like unique kind of pin uh like all these moves that he doesn't do anymore that are really cool looking and then yeah he hits glory I, and i really feel like at, at this point in the match they've really and i think you see this a lot in 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 main event new japan matches where like it feels like things are at a fever pitch and that there's like this chase to the finish and as much as i like the the other three matches that we've already watched like those matches never enter this sort of like Oh my God! Fever, fever pitch. They're they're exchanging holds. They're going for the finish. Kind of feeling that, especially after I think it's after he he hit uh, misses the stardust. Yeah, I mean, like the New Japan stretch runs are, are pretty. I mean, when you mm-hmm. know they can they can get corny, you know, and, and on occasion, mm-hmm. but like mm-hmm. when they when they hit, I mean, I they're like among the best things in wrestling, probably. So, um, so he hits Gloria. He goes up top of the stardust press, and Okada rolls out of the way. And then, you know, Okada does, like, the reverse neck breaker on the knee. Uh, he goes for the heavy rain. He's still starting to like here, so that's good. He's not, he hasn't forgotten about it. Uh, he, he hits heavy rain for a near fall. Uh, so he goes for the Rainmaker. Naito catches the arm. He turns into a cradle. I wish to God that had been the pin. That would have been an incredible... If Naito was winning, he yeah. should have won with that. That would have been, like, the greatest finish of all time. It was such yeah. a great, like, like, counter into that cradle. Yeah, this, this finishing stretch is really good. Like the, there's, a, there's a minute or two before it where they're really having a, a really nice dramatic uh, sort of folding and unfolding where, uh, you know, I think there's the, the top rope Hurricane Rana and then they sort of sell and come back into another thing. But then they really speed it up and they have like, I, I couldn't even take notes about what was happening because there's this, um, there's the, the Rana, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the Rainmaker attempts that uh, Naito counters, which I think you just mentioned with this, this really hot pin uh, cradle. And they they come apart, and then they go eventually into the finish. Yeah. yeah. So Naito, I, I tried to write it all down. Let's see here. So Okada, he goes to the Rainmaker again after base right before that Naito. He, it's really subtle, and so you might not even know what he was going for. But like he's trying to leap onto Okada and do a reverse Rana, and Okada does this great like subtle counter where he basically just pushes him forward, so his own momentum takes hit makes him miss Okada and, like, land on his feet right in front of him. And that spot 
is one of those spots where I'm like, how the fuck did they do that so perfectly? I mean, I imagine that must have been like any little wrong thing, and that could have looked very silly, you know? And it's like they man- they managed to make it look absolutely perfect. And then Okada goes for the Raymaker when, when Naito lands in front of him, but Naito... You know, he, he ducks, he goes for another German. Okada does a standing switch and tries his own German. Naito lands on his feet and does this, like, which one of those images that's stuck in my head for eight years, where he lands on his feet and sticks his arms out like, I'm still here, I'm going to beat you. Like, the crowd is like, it sounds like these people are, like, screeching at this point. Like, they're so excited mm-hmm. that Naito lands on his feet. Um, and then he ducks into the lariat and goes for the... Uh, flying forearm again, but that's just like deadly mistake where Okada's ready for it this time and like basically just swats him away, which is such a great like final counter, and then finally hits the Rainmaker. It's an enormous Rainmaker too. Like it looks like he just killed him after all this. Like th- this little guy, you know, a smaller guy managed to avoid it, avoid it, avoid it, but when he finally gets hit by it, it's like complete death and you know it's over. And then that's the pen. Uh, I absolutely adore this match. I don't again. This is another one where I go back and forth on four and three quarters and five. I think it's four and three quarters because maybe you could say you know um, there's a little there's some parts of it that before the final stretch that aren't quite you know up to that level. Uh, you know, like like I said, the only real flaws you could point to is maybe some of the early portions a little boring. Uh, but you could make that critique of a lot of New Japan made events, honestly. And Okada does kind of forget about the leg injury in the final stretch. I guess uh, he sells it so well for so long. And Naito doesn't go after it for long enough that it doesn't really bother me that much. But, you know, I can kind of nitpick that, I guess, if you want to keep it from five. I think I probably have said it's full five before, but I'm going to go for one three quarters here. Uh, it's just an yeah. incredible match. I, I, I adore this match. Yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent match. I think just, like, watching this, again, alongside the other two matches, the other three matches up to this point, I, I guess what, I, what, I, what stands out here is how maybe the Lucha influence... Is is more uh, I don't know, present and and in fact you know the other wrestlers that we already watched at this point maybe never had a, an excursion in Mexico but I, I just think it speaks to how you know having having the young lines go on excursion and and get all this experience and and time has gone on and people can study all these different styles of wrestling now and now I think what we have in New Japan is where a lot of the wrestling is is really good but we also have a, like a, an assimilation. And like a, a nice synthesis of all these different styles from all these different regions of the world that are, you know, I don't know, used in a, in a really great way. And I'm thinking especially of the that that last sequence where they're just going so fast, so fast, and Rainmaker this, and flip, he lands on his feet and go through the next thing, and then flow, 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 finish. Yeah, yeah. and like you know, the I, I've seen people describe it in a critical way as like the everything is the Japanese junior style now, but the Japanese junior style is really good. I mean, like that was stuff that people really loved in the nineties. So if, if there had to be a style that was going to win the quote unquote, like wrestling style war, there definitely could have been worse ones, you know? So, I mean, I don't know if you even think that's that criticism is true or not, but you know, it is, I, I do think there's something to it, but like you said, in a way, I mean, the Japanese junior style to begin with, there's also, like lucha influenced and you know influenced by lots of other stuff too so you know it's all it's all relative i guess i I guess it's sort of like i think about wrestling a lot like food like if you eat the same thing you know for dinner every day eventually you get sick of it no matter how great it is and and sometimes you just want to taste different flavors you know and you know i I think that's 
I think that's a, a kind of a useful analogy in that, you know, if it, it's good to have like, you know, you, you can watch all the great New Japan main events of the last five years or so. And they may eventually start to wash over you. But then if you put some other different style of if you watch like a rings match or something, all this, that's, that's way different yeah. than, than all the, all the things you've been consuming up to that point. So it's like, it's just a different taste, you know? Yeah. And I think it's also why people get burned out, like at the end of G ones and stuff where. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that match is definitely awesome. And I definitely recommend watching. I mean, pretty much. Honestly, this is probably the consistently best batch of matches we've had on this show. So pretty much all, every match we talked about, if you haven't, uh, if you haven't watched them, you should watch them. Uh, that brings us to the last one, which is the fan vote match, uh, which was my pick: Aja Kong versus Hikaru Shida from Oz Academy on September seventeenth, twenty eighteen. Um, so you picked Bailey and Sh- Bailey and Sasha Banks from twenty fifteen. Yes. And, you know, I wanted to counter what a women's match just because it just felt like the thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I thought of this match mostly because Akar Shida is kind of in the news lately. She just won the AEW women's title. So I thought mm-hmm. it'd be cool to go back and, like, highlight one of her, maybe her best match ever. I don't know. It's pretty pretty high up there. Uh, you know, she wasn't, like, she was never, like, a, 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 one of my favorites in Joshi. And I think she, mm-hmm. you know, she could be very inconsistent at times. But, like, this was probably her and the best match I ever saw her in, I think. Um, but yeah, this this kind of smoked uh, Bailey and Sasha in the fan vote. So, so this is Oz Academy. Oz Academy, yeah. <laughs> it did. Yeah, so this is Mayumi Ozaki. Yep, it's her is prom- it her promotion? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it start. It's a weird thing where it started out as like just something she was going to do to like entertain herself, and like they weren't running that many shows per year, and it like grew into a full time promotion. So mm. it's an interesting little thing. Uh, so this is for their open weight title. It was held by Hikaru Shida. She won it back in June 2018. Uh, Asha Kong, she had actually been the very first champion back in 2007, but after she held three of the first nine reigns, she hasn't held it since April 2011. So it's been a while for her here. Uh, and this is at Oz's big Yokohama Bunka Gymnasium show, which is or Bunka Gymnasium, I should say, which draws like very respectable crowds. I mean, this is almost 2,100 people. So. Hmm. Pretty pretty decent crowd here, uh, but bigger than some of the men's promotions were drawing at this building at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm assuming you'd never seen this before. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm just guessing. Absolutely not. Definitely not. Definitely okay. not. Yeah. Um, I would say like overall, Shida looks really good in this match. Aja Kong was uh, very efficient. I will say, <laughs> no wasted movement from Aja Kong in this match. Yeah, I mean she's like fifty, so I get it. But right. like, uh, right, yeah. Like, so, so what, what, what would you say? Like, what is obviously? I, I, I've seen a lot of Aja Kong from the '90s, and I've seen a little bit in in the period where I was following in real time in the early 2000s. Like, what is her? She's obviously a, a, a legend. She's one of the greatest uh, wrestlers, probably say regardless of gender, one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. Like, but like, what is her status in the in the Joshi world at this moment here in 2018? Uh, probably just as like, yeah, like the living legend kind of like who shows up just to kick somebody's ass. But like, I mean, she would she is not doing very many jobs. So the fact that she loses this right. is a big deal. But yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, she, I, I believe she had been Sendai Girls World Champion either like a year before or two years before. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I think she had been Sendai Girls World Champion recently. So she she still holds like big titles, but like definitely more of like a you know, like a 
freelance legend role like you know goes to lots of different places and just like makes little appearances she also i believe like started making started getting a lot of like uh variety tv appearances too in japan really yeah wow. so like i think she like appeared on tv a few a bunch of times um mm. and just became like a bit of a minor celebrity i, I could be wrong on that but i i could have sworn i read that somewhere uh and she even did like a bunch of comedy matches in ddt and stuff so like you know, I think I've seen some some uh, Stoker Ichikawa versus Aja Kong. Yeah. yeah, so like I don't want to call her a comedy figure because that's not really accurate because she still wrestles lots of serious matches. But uh, like she's also she also can be a bit of a meme figure, I guess is the way to put it. You know, right? Like she mm-hmm. she will show up to be like you know like haha it's Aja Kong. So it's like you know we're way past the days where she's like you know a hundred percent serious heel that like is the most feared wrestler in the building. Like at this point. You know, she's just been around so long that you're never going to have that. You know, you just can't, you, you can't be this most hated monster forever, right? So yeah. you're just going to have too so, much goodwill built up. So, so this match picks up later, and I'm sure you'll, you'll get into the details. I won't get ahead of you. But, like, like she's gnawing on gum at, at moments in this match. <laughs> she's, like, she's just, like, sort of standing and waiting for the next spot at times. But, yes, all, all-time legend. Yeah, I mean, she just, like she has that like aura and that's i feel like that's kind of how she's always worked where it's like you have to come to her like you she is not gonna come to you and she's not gonna you know go out of her way or anything like you have to come to her um you know she she, there's another again yeah another leg match but Sheeta does a really good job selling the leg here so you know it works again um and at one point uh kong like takes that like trademark iron garbage can thing she, she always carries around with her and she just like smashes it into her leg in midair when Sheeta tries a knee attack and that just looks like brutal and it makes it like one of those it's one of those wrestling things too that makes like a very satisfying noise. sound yeah yeah so if you do any, anything in pro wrestling that makes noise oh people love it <laughs> it's so funny because a couple weeks ago I covered a match um a really famously bad match from ECW I don't know if you've ever seen it Sandman and Sabu from like no, November November 97 which so. has like where like every single thing they try goes wrong and like one of the big problems of the match is that in addition to everything th- there's so many spots that like look like shit and especially sound like shit like there's no sound to any of it because like these tables keep breaking early or things fall down or ladders fall down or whatever and you can just hear the crowd go uh but then at the same time like you know like these groans of disgust or whatever but at the same time it looks like it hurts like hell so it's like the worst of both worlds where like you're not getting the reaction as a wrestler but like you're causing yourself extreme pain so i don't know if that made me think of that because it's like the it's the opposite where like the sound wasn't there with these weapons and these spots and it's just like you couldn't get any reaction because of it uh, I, i've seen a sandman match where where sandman falls asleep have you seen that match? i don't i don't know not the top man i don't know what you're thinking of talking about so in uh, central new york there used to be uh, this promotion called 2cw and uh they, you know, they booked a lot of names. And one time they booked uh, Sandman, and in the course of his match, I think he applies a front face lock, and the Sandman falls asleep while applying a front face lock. <laughs> That's awesome. If you, if you probably if you search for Sandman falls asleep two CW, it probably comes up on YouTube. Okay, I'll check that out. Um, but yeah, so there's a, another badass spot in this match for like Kong, like repeatedly headbutt Sheeta's leg, which I always that looks so cool. Uh, and she is able to like recover, and she hits a snap suplex on Kong, which is pretty impressive. Uh, and then follows up with a missile drop kick. She's still moving slower and selling the leg, which is good. Um, 
she gets like a cross arm breaker and I, I really like the struggle to, to lock that in like you know she starts with her like sort of on her belly and she has to like pull her like all the way over and then eventually like finally lock in the cross arm breaker I don't know the struggle looked really good to me but mm-hmm. um, and then she starts like stomping on her arms where you essentially have like double limb work here um, have you ever tried to do that like a double limb work match is that difficult I'm trying to remember it. I, I do an arm bar a lot, so I, I do a ton of arm work. But I, I don't know. You When you say double limb, though, you mean like both limbs of one person? Oh, no, no, or... I mean like, I guess maybe the, there's different, like dueling limb work might be a better way to put it. Like they're but targeting you do, your leg you know, and you're targeting their arm. Not that comes to mind. I think we would be afraid that like, oh, that's too similar. People will get confused. I think, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it, it should happen, though. I don't know. Well, no, you got an idea for next time. Yeah. Uh, so they end up on the ramp, and Sheeta goes for like this running knee attack, but Kong like counters into this like brutal looking brainbuster on the ramp. An awesome spot. Um, and after that, we end up with like uh, there's some more great action. And then we end up with like a kendo stick versus iron garbage can standoff, which is won by the garbage can. And then they trade these like Kong does the back fists, and Sheeta. Uh, does... A highlight here is after the the suplex on the ramp. Uh huh. After the suplex on the ramp. Uh, Sheeta almost gets counted out, and as Aja Kong is waiting for the the count to reach twenty, she she is sternly watching as she chews on gum. <laughs> yeah, she like she's like I said, it's, you got to bring it to her. She's not going to bring it to you. So, um, there's so like there was like a great spot like basically where they're trading like these back like Kong's doing the back fists and Sheeta's doing the step up knees. And they both finally go down. And then Kong comes up bloody. So I guess she really... I, I think it was hard way, right? Would you yeah, I, I that's what I, I would guess. I think it's her nose. So probably. Yeah. So I guess she really got her one of those... She did not look happy. So I don't think it was... Uh, she yeah. was either acting really well, but I don't I, I don't think it was Blade job. I think she got her hard way. No. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it, it adds a little bit to the end, obviously, as excellent blood almost always does. Have you ever been like accidentally busted open? Has that happened to you yet? One time I was wrestling Kevin Bennett a couple of years ago. Oh, it was a great moment. So, like, he did, like, a – he was standing on the, the, the ring apron, and I was standing on the floor. He did a moonsault from the apron to me on the floor, and I, I took it. And somehow, like, I, I, I don't remember anything hurting, but somehow, we, like, the back of my head got cut open. And, uh, well, anyway, we get back in the ring, and there's, like, blood all over the place. And I tell him, hey, you're bleeding. <laughs> and, he, and he's like, no, I'm not. And, uh, and then the referee comes up to me and is like, hey, I, I think you're bleeding. I'm like, oh, shit, I'm the one that's bleeding. <laughs> and then I put, then I put my, my, the, my fingers through the back of my hair, and, like, and then I look at my hand, and it's covered in red. Oh, wow. And then I look at – so my hand is just full of blood, and I have to keep wrestling this match. So, like, I, I don't know what else to do, but I just put my hand across my chest and just, like, smear it across my chest. And people go, ugh. <laughs> There's a gift somewhere. Like I just like spread it across my chest and then just chop the fuck out of them. And, yeah, yeah, it was a nice moment. There's a good photo of that somewhere. Is that? Have you ever done a blade job either? Or no, no, I've never, never have. Not something that interests you, huh? Um, <laughs> I, the the situations just never uh, really. I don't know. It's never really. I guess there are a couple matches I've had that were like, you know, culminating gimmick matches, but it's never, it's never, it's never been really pitched or discussed. No, I've never done it. Yeah. Because I, 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 when I used to think about, like, wanting to be a wrestler when I was a kid, I'd always be like, I don't know if I can cut my forehead open. That sounds pretty, yeah. pretty oh, here, gnarly. Here's, 
so here's a great story. Like when I was, I don't know, 14 or 13 or something like that, of course I was doing backyard wrestling and um, I would take, I would like, you know, I don't know. I'd be watching like Mick Foley DVDs and shit. This is probably exactly what Mick Foley didn't want. But, um, but I was like, you know what? You know, it was the era of hardcore and like I got ready for my wrestling career someday. So I found, so I like grabbed a steak knife from the kitchen. And I went back into my bedroom and closed the door. And like, I would like practice, like, you know, cutting my forehead to see if see if i could get some color and uh and you know you know later on your mom notices and she's like what's going on you know and i think my my dad like they lived in in different homes and i remember like telling my dad about it or something and he uh he was talking to like one of his friends about it or something and and she got all concerned and said like if she hears about that again she's gonna have to call child protective services because i was i was self-cutting you know which sounds <laughs> people who don't understand the fine art of blading just they just can't understand that and think i was doing some sort of self-mutilation yeah uh, i i mean it does sound pretty crazy to normal people <laughs> i think <laughs> cutting your own forehead right open. like your, your teenage son is cutting himself well I, I think it sounds pretty crazy just to people in general like that to, <laughs> you, you cut yourself open during your performance but yeah. yeah it it is it is nuts yeah yeah i mean it's not really that widespread anymore anyway but no it's not done as much yeah. um there was a match i had with jimmy olsen where um you know he had me give him like the tope through the ropes into the ddt and like he started to do it and uh, i was probably grabbing him too soon so he had had to like hurry up and, and get it done because i was on him too soon so my fault but somehow around the same time during the match uh, I must, something must have happened where like my fingers hit the guardrail is my only guess or maybe I hit his blade I don't know but anyway we're back in the ring and actually this is before he blades so I'm jumping all around but like yeah we have the match I know he's going to gig like seven minutes later and we've already done a spot on the outside where like I, I must have touched the rail or maybe I touched his blade but like there's blood all over my, my, my arms and I'm like and I go to him I'm like already? already? you're bleeding? like you bladed yourself already? you're not supposed to do it until later and like but and I didn't even realize it until after the match. We're like, oh man, my like my ring finger and my pinky were sliced open. Oh wow! I have no idea. But there's you know there's there's just pictures of me covered in blood from both him bleeding and me bleeding. So you bladed yeah. your fingers at least. <laughs> that's, that's something. Something, something yeah. happened. I have no idea. Yeah, I think those are the only times, only two times I've really bled in a match. Right. Uh, so let me see where we were here. So Sheeta. <laughs> She, I think she stops Kong from going to the top and like slams her off, and then gets like her knee struck attempt like completely shrugged off by Kong, which is a, you know, a great little thing there. Um, and then she like, so again, I guess the leg selling. Where, where it annoys me less is like where you there's like a long gap where the wrestler was working on the leg, and it, it doesn't seem like, you know, she was working on it for so long that it's completely unrealistic that you could shrug off the pain for a while. So it's okay that she's it's a little off and on here, but like. By the time Kong, like, starts working, like, trying to go back to the leg, you know, it's, like, it's more like of a callback than anything. And she, like, you know, nails her in the leg with the kendo stick. Uh, you know, she gets it back and then hits her in the face. Or Sheeta gets it back and hits her in the face. And then limps, ar- limps around a bit before hitting, like, a running knee. But, like, Kong kicks out at one. Which is, you know, one, ki- one count kick outs are awesome. Pretty much always. Mm-hmm. So, especially, like, in the later in the match. Uh, and then Sheeta goes up top and hits the diving double knee str- attack for two. And then she pulls the knee pad down and finally hits one last uh, running knee strike for the pin. So, it's a pretty awesome match. I, I will say, I don't think I liked it quite at the same level I remember from 2018. Uh, you know, even though I just excused a little bit, the off and on leg selling is there. 
especially at the end. And there are a couple little boring stretches. But the stuff that feels like a war, like, really feels like a war. Uh, and Sheeta feels like she overcomes this monster, like, in the in the absolute best way. Uh, so it's, like, a very a very old-school Joshi feel to it, too, to me, which I think is yeah. the whole idea. So I would go four and a half. I really loved it, but not quite the level of some of the other matches we talked about. But Yeah. I guess I'm parachuting in, as, as people say. Like, I think that this kind of goes back to what we were talking about way back at the beginning. I was putting over the the six nine ninety five match is that I, I'm I'm sure it's it's much easier to appreciate a match and appreciate a story of a match when you know who the characters are and you know everything that's going on in the context that builds up to it and uh, it's it's so like having a great match is not just about like what happens bell to bell but but like the the creative vision and the booking and all the meaning that happens before it you know when when wrestling is harder when you're when you're not over and it's and like all the meanings aren't as well defined and that's when and it's the opposite when things are well defined and it's you can make something really special right that's a good way to put it uh so you didn't so in other words you're saying you didn't like it that much <laughs> if if i didn't know who any of these people were <laughs> there's there's like one moment where where that that takes me out of it where like where aja kong is it's it's towards the end and this match does pick up towards the end but there's still like a moment at towards the end i think where, where she's like standing up up on her feet and maybe in the cross arm bar or something but anyway she's bent over and there's like there's a moment where you can she kind of has her head up in a, in a way of like watching for the next spot to me mm-hmm. um it's just sort of just like small things where like you know if 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 i saw somebody younger doing something like that or like one of our students would be like you know you know it's it's a moment i would say of like of like not selling where so selling is not just to me is not just um showing pain or showing that you know this move hurt but selling is like selling selling the intensity of the match or selling or reacting and showing body language in a way that helps show a cohesive um a cohesive uh, pr- presentation of something that that it that is a fight and not a cooperation i guess right so i guess that makes sense all right, so we've gone very long, so longer than I used to go on these five-match episodes. But uh, I had a great time, Brendan. Thank you for coming on. Yeah. Do you want to plug your podcast and the Twitter accounts and such? Yeah, uh, I do WrestleNomics. Uh, there's a website, even WrestleNomics.com, where I put some written stuff, and there's a lot of resources and spreadsheet links and things of that nature. And on this very wrestling uh, podcast network, you can listen to uh, WrestleNomics Radio. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Brandon Thurston. You can follow the WrestleNomics account at WrestleNomics, where we cover the business of wrestling, I think, about as closely as anybody in the world. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you guys, you do the exact opposite of what you've done in the last two hours and 40 minutes or whatever. uh... I never talk about wrestling matches. I just talk about the business of wrestling, and I... uh... Here's here's a fact that I haven't said on the podcast yet. It takes me about five hours to record. My, you, I haven't recorded an episode since I've been doing these by myself, like in a monologue style. Um, I it, it I've gone under an hour, I think, every time, and it takes me about five hours. I'm getting a little bit quicker at it lately, maybe four, but it takes me about four hours to do like a one hour podcast because there's just a lot of pausing the recorder and like looking stuff up. It's not always all this stuff that i have off the top of my head hmm. a lot of it anyway well you do a really good job editing it because i can't tell that it's not recorded uh, if you listen closely yeah <laughs> but yeah I'm, I'm getting a little bit better at the recording and editing 
and I'm uh, working on the sound quality. I'm, I'm, I'm recording from the, the walk-in closet right now, in fact. Yeah. Well, I definitely think it's uh, – can definitely recommend that. I listen most weeks, so uh, it's on the Voice of Wrestling Podcasting Network. Just like Wrestling Omakase, which, as always, you can listen to us every week. You can follow us on Twitter at Russell Omakase, uh, Wrestling Would Not Fit. And, folks, uh, like I mentioned at the top, the Patreon is the only place to hear the next episode, which is going to be me and Alan Farrell, uh, Alan Coulihan from PW Torch, his debut on Wrestling Omakase. That'll be Omakase 148 next week. Uh, it'll be exclusively for $5 a month. Uh, it gets you, all, gets you that episode plus all of our other audio at patreon.com slash wrestlingomakase. Uh, we will have another free episode next week as well, uh, episode number 149. It'll be me and Taylor from another Voices of Wrestling uh, podcast, the Jumping Bomb Audio. I mean, Taylor, I might as well say he's from Omakase because he's made so many appearances on this show, but none yet this year, so it'll be his first in a while. But yeah, so Taylor will be coming back on the show next week. Uh, so that'll be next week. Patreon subscribers, patreon.com slash Omakase for the Allen episode. And then on the Voices of Wrestling Network like normal, it'll be me and Taylor for another five matches episode. In the meantime, thank you as always for listening, and we'll see you next time.